Yeah, can you hear me this time? I can hear you. Still? Yes. Oh, okay. It could tell me there's a problem with the microphone, but I don't see why. Tommy, can you hear me? In the weird scenes inside the gold mine, your guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Today, Pam Greer on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Good evening and welcome to, I believe it's the fifth episode of the ninth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight, one of the most recognizable names in exploitation, and we're not even talking about one of the guys. Starting off as a receptionist and switchboard operator, she was quickly snapped up to feature roles in five of the earliest women in prison films for Roger Corman, where she impressed enough in a series of satellite roles to work her way into commanding full marquee value and headliner status all her own just inside of three years. One of the first and certainly the most important female action stars, this former army brat became the queen of black exploitation throughout the 1970s, shifting into stranger waters with the changing decade, Disney, socially-minded policier, and even co-starring in the first Steven Seagal film, before taking a few roles for a faltering John Carpenter, doing a Bill and Ted film, and winding up in one of the worst Eddie Murphy vehicles ever committed to celluloid, and starring in a Quentin Tarantino homage to her earlier work that revised her cash to a new generation. So join us tonight as we talk the first lady of black exploitation, the one and only Pam Greer, here on Weird Scenes. Coffee is the color of the film's Pam Greer. I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. How are you doing, Lewis? Hey, how is everyone out there? Yeah. Pam had a tough life growing up, which... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um... A few things we left out from that intro. Pam has had a rather strange life. Apparently, and this is where I think you were going, she was raped at a very young age. Obviously, she's a real survivor and managed to put down a lot of the expected demons that come with that, given just how many times she's been naked on film, and even in a few cases, rape besides. Not exactly Shelter Our Sisters' recommended route to recovery there. Hey, let's go relive the trauma on celluloid. She's a mutt like me. In her case, the mix is black, Spanish, Chinese, Filipino, and Cheyenne. Yeah, that's really... None of which we share, mine, but... That's interesting, though. That's a really interesting mix going on there. Mm-hmm. You know, mutts, we think the best part of several international backgrounds and boil it to perfection. <laughs> she had one terrible track record when it came to guys. She was involved with Lou Alcindor, the future Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but his proposal was a bit odd. Apparently, he demanded she turn Muslim and hinted around by having a Mormon-style multi-wife setup. Naturally, she'd refuse, because, hey, who'd accept? Then, she went up with Freddie Prinze of Chico and the Man, who wanted her to be his baby mama. She backed off since he was such a huge drug addict, and then he committed suicide not long after, right at the height of success. She kept up the bad choices, getting involved with Richard Pryor, right at the height of his freebasing, and apparently pulled up Wally Famous Amos because he needed to learn to read, which she seems to have taught him. In return, he gave her numb lips and, quote, a buildup of cocaine residue in and around her privates, which appears to have led to, wait for this, a near-fatal bout with cancer only a decade later. Mm -hmm. Supposedly she was given 18 months at the time. Gee, thanks, Richard. So considering that we saw her at worst 10 years ago, maybe sooner, she got through all this crap and seems to be in pretty good form. She was certainly really friendly and made a huge impression on my wife. She still talks about what a sweetheart this woman was. So go ahead. You can dig deeper. Like no, uh, I, I may not dig so deep on this one uh, so we can spend more time with 
Actually, in this show, there's going to be a couple of key movies I believe we're going to both want to talk about. And but a lot of stuff has been minor appearances the last 20 years, 30 years, uh, except for the old word, which you know we're certainly going to mention, and Jackie Brown, of course, that falls into that that era. But yeah, I I met Pam too. A, a little bit of sweet. She's a sweet lady. I took a photo with her. And the event I was uh, working at the time, we had scheduled, and I was so, so thrilled that her agent agreed to this. Uh, I was going to do a onstage uh, Q&A with her. And this was around the period where she first started doing these things again, appearances at conventions or anything like that. And except that she had such lines of people because, you know, Post Jackie Brown, like, oh, my God, it's Pam Greer. And she completely forgot we had a scheduled time and never showed up. But I did get to meet her, <laughs> spoke with her, had, had a picture, a photograph taken with her. And I was like, I'll see you in an hour, Pam. And, like, I never saw Pam again. But, <laughs> yeah, and there was a whole room waiting for her, too. And it was kind of but I deal with these kind of things. But anyway, she's, she is a very sweet lady, and uh, I'm glad that your wife had a nice, uh, and probably you as well. Yeah, I, I thought you know, she was friendly, nice. but she made such an impression on my wife. And she did spend uh, a extra time talking to her, so maybe that was why. Yeah, it could have been the thing. You know, again, she's you know she's she's doing this out of the box. What is this thing called personal appearances, et cetera? You know, if it's not like Givenchy or something. And, you know. She liked talking to the people, and, and I think, you know, just a lot of people saying, like, I love you. And I'm sure women really was a thing, uh, women who came to her and said hello. I think because of her background and, and her tough times trying to find a good companion, I think she really was, which is probably why late, later on in the L Word, uh, which ran a good couple of years, she was uh, she's one of the few non-lesbian characters on that show who stayed with that show for a long time, and where she was sort of like the, you know, like a caregiver in a way, you know, like a psychic caregiver. You know, it's Pam Pam Greer's like that, but she did not start out that way. Oh no, <laughs> in film. All right, so 1970, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Weird yes. camp psychedelia from the pen of no less than film critic Roger Ebert, who go on to decry many a film less sleazy than this one, and directed by the highly overrated, memory-obsessive Russ Meyer, who's hands down the least likable of all exploitation directors bar none. I'm sorry, but Faster Pussycat Kill Kill aside, he's as far as blanks. This is actually the man's second best film, with a loose plot revolving around an all-girl rock band, their relationships, and how it all comes crashing down at one druggy party, where a flamboyant gay hippie named Z-Man, who'd since become the band's manager, comes out to one of their guys, has a big reveal, and turns homicidal. It's bizarre, it's twisted, it's probably the most fucked up film you used to see on daytime TV ever. The Turner Network showed it fairly regularly, if you can believe that. And has some good music in it from the fake band and the real, if allegedly prefab, Strawberry Alarm Clock. But if you're looking for Pam, don't blink. It's a walk-on cameo at best. Um, I don't dislike Russ Meyer as much as you do. I, I, I have actually a take on Russ Meyer entirely different from anyone else I've ever read, including a Russ Meyer book. I think Jimmy McDonough wrote that. I tried reading the Russ Meyer autobiography, but it's like, more lube, please. No, it's fine. <laughs> I think Russ was a really interesting filmmaker who I have no evidence that he ever took psychedelics by his movies and make no bloody sense. And they're like somebody on a trip. So from a guy who 
used to take many trips in my past. <laughs> um, I I could see no, I could see things like that. I can, you know, like hey, yeah, like like the the movies Napier appears in, like Super Vixens and all that stuff. Uh, these are not linear films. These are bizarre movies. They're not they're not poorly made either. They're shot really well, and it's just like bizarre. But yes, as far as Pam goes, she has a walk on pretty much. Uh, she's recognizable, but I love that the Nero story. Speaking of Captain Trips, there. <laughs> oh, that the one I had on Facebook. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, people that don't know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a five a five minute aside. I'm watching the clock here. I was working for a place one time, and uh, Bobby De Niro was on stage, and uh, Chaz Palminteri's Cuban teddy bear, uh, Chaz's big friend of his, and the place I worked for had shot it on videotape, and they were going to do a big budget movie. Okay, you with me? So after hours, De Niro used to come in and want to watch his his performance. I get it. You know, you want to see how you're doing it. You want to see how you can blow it up bigger for film or bring it down and my buddy had somebody has to stay in the room with him and so my friend who was like in this department had to do that so then somebody calls me later in the day it's like oh shit louis rich is doing a fist fist fight in the street I'm like, what are you talking about no him and de niro what <laughs> what richie comes in he's all red he's all like i gotta go i gotta go what happened no i can't talk to you and he left i'm like what the fuck so somebody says uh we need you to do us a favor I'm like, what do you mean? I'm in a different department. So it's explained to me, there's nobody to stay with him. Can you sit in the room with Robert De Niro? He wants to watch us. But I know he just had a fist fight with my friend. <laughs> so I'm saying, oh, shit. Like, this is weird. So I knock on the door like that. <laughs> and I open the door. He goes, yeah, hi. I say, hi, I'm Lewis, blah, blah, blah. Listen, somebody has to be in here. Yeah, I just want to finish this, please. I just want to watch this. It'll be like another hour, okay? So I opened the door. I said, he wants to finish it. What do you want to do? What am I going to do? It's Robert De Niro. Okay. Close the door. I sit down. So at the end, he goes, thank you so much. He hugs me, shakes my hand. Really, that was so cool of you. No, no, it's all right. It's fine. Just get the fuck out of here. You know? <laughs> so next day, I'm at work. You know, and Richie comes in and says, hey, man, I'm really so sorry. I was fucked up. They made me do it. Yeah. And he goes, there's a messenger downstairs for you. Why are they calling you? Well, it's for you. Guy comes in. This guy, can you sign this? Yeah. Fucking grammar code. <laughs> so, so I said, Richie passed on by. So I said, what do you want to do? He goes, let's do it. It's all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you could, well, you could print, you could print this. I'm older now. But it's true. We were like, this must be good shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at first he was like, I want to throw it away. He fucking hit me. And I said, how did the fight stop? That was how. That was how. <laughs> <laughs> Apropos, he had said, okay, we got the five-minute story. He had said that, uh, excuse me, sir, but, you know, we, we have to close the building. And he said, don't you know who I am? And he went from there. Yeah. So. As, as far as my thing with him, it was weird. That was that story. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I have moments like that. Primo Colombian. Which Grey. leads us the big, the big dollhouse. Yes, 1971, the big dollhouse. As Greer, spelled wrong, that was her character name. First of far too many women in prison films set in the Philippines, many of which came out of Roger Corm's ages. This time, directed by a guy who did much better stuff than this, Jack Hill. 
As usual, you get the likes of Roberta Collins, Pat Whittle, and the ubiquitous Sid Haig. Pam is the cleverly named Greer, a butch lesbian who's had a bad experience with men and now lords it over herself. The film kind of tries to have it both ways, building her up as a total mean-ass bitch in the first half, then trying to humanize her and make her more sympathetic as things come out, and you see how she tries to take care of her junkie girlfriend slash cellmate. Apparently, she impressed Corman enough to cast her in a few more of these, and hence led to her career thereafter, but she's really just one of several women with a lot of screen time in a film that's more soapy than the sort of torture and sleaze fest that the genre would very shortly become known for. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the genre become in for every country involved in it, much more lurid, too, uh, going forward. The funny thing was, Jack Hill did a couple of these, uh, actually did a couple of these films in, uh, in review for a zine that will be coming out after the new year. Just coincidentally, I just, like, shot it out. But, yeah, uh, they would become much more lurid depending wherever the country. It didn't depend. Whatever country they came from, they became more lurid, much more sex. Sometimes hard to watch. This is one of the first. Jack Hill, yes, you're right. He he did much better work with other things. But he got stuck in a rut for, like, two or three, two and a half years, actually, doing these things. But because, and here's the funny thing. Corman fucked him over because Corman is realizing, I don't have to bring Jack Hill to do this. I can get some Filipino guy to direct something. <laughs> and that's what happened. We're going to be discussing some of these, too. Yes. Um, it's the first of its type made here. And, and then some American. Yes, Pam Greer is just Pam Greer. Sid Hay, you know, beloved, uh, you know, Spider Baby, which in 65, a few years, five years before this, he was in Jack Hill's uh, now cult classic. Then what the fuck kind of movie it was. Well, it still and is. <laughs> it's still, yeah, still is a what the fuck kind of movie. But, yeah, but now it's beloved by many. Yeah, um, I enjoy it. Yeah, it's what it is. But, you know, she had a tough part. And the funny thing was, I have not researched Pam deep enough to find out stuff with this. But the early years of Pam, 71 to 72, she was of much darker complexion. To me, she seemed to have gotten lighter. I was wondering if that was was just a bad filming or, yeah, who knows. You too? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we had such things as pigmentation or augmentation back then, but who knows? (laughs) Uh, uh, maybe, Maybe like reverse sunlight. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I need some hot black women friends of mine to like comment on this show to like <laughs> let us know about this. Like, how, how, you know, how did Pam Greer go from being dark to being chocolate to being like, hmm? <laughs> um, so anyway, the dark is good too. By the way, we're not we, we like chocolate. I was gonna so, say. So uh, <laughs> the big dollhouse—they don't have to be high interesting. <laughs> that's. It's an MGM film, too. This is really interesting. Rob, Roger Corman produced this through New World, but this is at the period where Roger was actually getting distribution through major major companies before he would distribute himself. And, like, so this is an MGM picture. Mm-hmm. Go figure. Again, this is – I'm going to probably say this quite a few times in the show. You've seen the trailer for this. They picked out the most lurid part, and this is probably one of the lighter of the, of the pictures she's done. Oh, yeah. Uh, in this vein, they picked the, the most lurid, hard parts of this film to be the trailer. So, you know, it's like, okay, we already got porn going on in Times Square and the Deuce and, you know, L.A. So, the early days, this is a 1971 film, but it's like, how do we get that crowd to see this film? Let's shoot a one-minute and 30-second trailer of this and just bring it out. And this is what begat the much later 
the Franco ones, Spanish. the Ilsa ones, the, the French yes, ones. Thank the, you. Yeah. You know where I was going uh-huh. with this, right? The Brazilian yeah. ones. <laughs> the Brazilian ones, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we got to the point where I saw something in German. I'm like, no, I don't want to ever see it again. Well, so, how about Chinese? Was that one behind the sun or whatever the hell it was? Oh, jeez. I don't want to see that yeah. again either. But Women in Cages was next. Yeah, so Women in Cages, same year, and already the Women in Prison film was starting to develop its tropes. This time it's Filipino horror standby Gerardo de Leon at the helm. It's got a lot of the same cast as last time around, but the feel is much darker, far more sleazy, with increased sex and torture and overall meanness of spirit. This time Pam's not a possibly sympathetic lesbian inmate, but a nasty, vindictive, and sadistic prison warden who sleeps with her victims between bouts on some rather intimidating implements. You know those Chang Chi Kung Fu films where they have people tortured on those ancient-looking metal devices, and you look at them and you know, you know, no good's going to come of this scene? It's much akin to that, you know, Manchu torture, Filipino women in prison style. Pam gets her comeuppance, too, at the hands of a bunch of filthy-looking Filipino soldiers, but it's just nasty. I really... Even among these first couple of films that she did, I really don't like it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you on this one. Gerardo de Leon actually did a lot of good, interesting films. Actually, award-winning filmmaker in the Philippines, because later this guy worked for a long, long time. It's cast with a lot of Filipinos who knew English, so didn't have to be dubbed. A lot of beautiful Filipino women and a lot of beautiful Eurasian looking women who were Filipino, but Danny was a white man. So just like, I'm not going to say Miss Universe 2019. <laughs> <clears throat> First time in seven years, she didn't even make it to the finals because she looked like a white girl from Texas and she came out there, I'm from the Philippines. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> she was, she was, she didn't even make, she didn't even forget about the finals. She, she got like, you're gone. Bye. You know, Bye. my wife always does this. We watch a lot of this stuff nowadays. Especially Did if you a, watch that? Well, not that, but if it's a big budget film or whatever, big budget TV show, okay. and they have to cast an Asian or whatever the hell, it's like, they're not fucking Asian. And that's what it always is, this Eurasian shit where they got somebody that's one quarter or something, you know, Chinese, Filipino. Well, well, well you're going to love this. So I watched it, you know, because the Mrs. Filipino one, you know, I, Filipino. So Miss Thailand was like from Joyzy. <laughs> She looked like it. She sounded like it. Miss Philippines was like from Texas, but she wasn't. She was from I Miss blah 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 blah. Miss Hong Kong and Miss Vietnam were gorgeous. They actually looked Asian. It was like, oh yeah, that's a rarity. Okay. They, they actually, whenever they had those, even when my father was alive and he wasn't really into that sort of thing, we would always cheer those on, like Miss Sri Lanka, and actually looked like a Sri Lankan. Yeah. But they would never get past even, like, the, the semifinals. You'd always get struck down to, oh, look, it's a bunch of white girls. One of them was slightly it's, black. No, I was like, wow, <laughs> man. But her English was a little mangled. She should have went with an interpreter. Would you believe? And then they have these, like, rich white girls who like the commentary. I can't believe Miss Philippine didn't get anywhere after the first round. I can't. She looked like she's like <laughs> Sally Smith. <laughs> Y'all, and she spoke like it. And y'all were just like, you know. Actually, I wound up rooting for Miss Mexico. Yeah. But it went to Miss South Africa, who was a close crop butch haircut. But hey, that's fine, whatever. <laughs> you know. um, she was a natural, man. She was a natural. <laughs> um, but irregardless, there were a lot of interesting Eurasian women in this, a lot of uh, Filipino actresses, Philippine actresses, who look kind of whitish and some look more Asian. So it lends some color to the show. Still, it's a little lord, maybe too lord. Maybe you know, Corman's like, oh, the Jack Hilton made money for me. 
I don't have to bring Jack in. We'll let you do it. You're already there. We'll send Pam back out there. And then Pam's surrounded by all these other people. Oh, what the occasional, you know, American actor or actress. It's it's not as rough as some other things. No, but compared to the one he just did, it was very rough. Yeah, yeah. We went from like eight to like yeesh. But, uh... <laughs> so next up, there's actually a break where uh, she does another Filipino one. And this is the Twilight people. Mm. There was a point in Filipino horror that even with a bunch of regulars like Eddie Romero directing, John Ashley starring, and the likes of Pat Woodle from The Big Dollhouse and Pam Greer co-starring, you get a boring-ass piece of shit like this. It's essentially trying to be another Dr. Moreau, with Diver Ashley getting kidnapped by Woodle and taken to her father's island. Of course, he's trying to do the whole Super Beast thing and make Manimal about a decade before it actually aired, and Ashley's in no rush to split because he's got a thing going on with all Pat. She turns on Daddy, they turn the animal people free without so much as a, are we not men? And that's it. Pam's big contribution is to hunch over with a hairy face once or twice, and a grand total of about two minutes screen time, if that. Boring. It really is bad. Oddly enough, this is one of the hardest films to see nowadays. Uh, it, really? It's been put out by one or two... VCI, and I'll put it out a couple times. VCI did, but they did short ends of this both times, like 100 copies, 200 copies. Okay, it's nowhere, folks. Bye. It's now $400 on eBay. You know, this kind of... <laughs> I'm sure somebody will will do another scan of this. Um, yeah, I, I, I you don't. Here's the funny thing, though, and, and you can't negate this. Pam was the selling point in the posters. Yeah, her few minutes of screen time, but like a very bosomy looking Pam, hunched over. You know, she was like the Panther Woman or something in this. It's an interesting looking movie. Eddie Romero did. You know, some of the more fun Matt Dr. Blood Allen things a few years previous. So, yeah, he's a good choice for this. He's good for atmosphere. Yeah, we did an Ariel Merrill show. I, well, not just Eddie, Gerardo de Leon and all the other Filipinos yeah. as well. Right. We talked about this back then, I think. But, yeah, it's, it's again, we have uh, lovely-looking Filipino women. There's some good-looking, you know, Filipino guys in this. Uh, there's a couple of people. Jan, uh, John Ashley, who was, like, there a couple of years you know he stayed after the after the blood island pictures because he was he was working out of there he was doing like his own production company he actually was a go-to with Corman between Corman and other people he didn't really come back to the states until years later and abandoned whatever production company he had there but so you know he would star in occasionally one of these things and this is one of the Really hard to see film after its initial release. The trailer's wild. The poster is wild in a very, uh, I don't know, Marcus Bowis kind of way. It's like the kind of tr- poster you would see, like, I got to see this movie, you know? And then you see the movie, it's like, oh, is that the movie? The <laughs> <laughs> Ballyhoo. Yeah, Ballyhoo, yes. She played Aisha, the Panther Woman. You know, it's, it's, it's not the best of Pam, but it's not what you think it's going to be. Go ahead. So next up, she actually gets a blaxploitation name, but it's not a very good one. Cool Breeze. Mm. I got to make a living. Guys like you put a girl on welfare. You don't shut up. You won't need welfare. You're going to need Medicare. I confess, I've never seen a, quote, good copy of this one. But I have this from one of those low-end gray market ones like Jeff Films or Maya 1-7, whatever the hell. Unless you're looking for one of the most oversexed to the point of sleazy films of the genre. Seriously. Everybody gets some hooker, girlfriend, or wife buck naked and treating them like they're a sex god. Even Truck Turner's neat Dinwiddie, Sam Laws, you're bound to be as distinctly underwhelmed as I was by this one. Despite the film starring not only Pam, 
Laws and Raymond St. Jacques of Cotton Comes to Harlem and Roots, but my man Thalmus Rasulala of films like Bucktown, Blackula, and Friday Foster. It's essentially a Thomas Crown slash Grand Slam style heist film with Rasulala as the hustler who puts the whole thing together and everyone from a neighborhood bookie to a slick crook where the cops can't make any charges stick to a Baptist minister as part of the team. But it's so boring and drawn out, it's hard to sit through with your eyes open. There's a slight black power subtext where Rasulala wants to use the profits from the heist to support black-owned local businesses, which of course others have different ideas about. But it's cheap-looking, it's sleazy, it's really down-market, and not in a fun way like Super Soul Brother, a.k.a. the $6,000, <clears throat> the Warhawk Tanzania films, Space is the Place, or A Guy from Harlem. It's just kind of sad. Despite the cast and a quick cameo from Spam as they stiffed hooker, I don't recommend this one even to fellow black exploitation aficionados. It's really kind of dull. Well, my take is if you can find a movie person from this on eBay cheap, buy it, man, because it's pretty cool, and it's not evocative of the film at all, but... <laughs> It looks like a Black James Bond film. It looks like a Black James Bond film. And here's the gig in this. MGM released this. And it's like, this is how they were making money back in these days. It was like these urban films. So here's the deal with black exploitation. We we did a show on this a long, long time ago. But Fred Williamson, yes, that Fred Williamson, uh, actually said to me more than once. He interviewed him about two or three times. And he said, there's no such thing as black exploitation. Who are we exploiting? These were films for black families. Okay, so. <laughs> uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but, uh, you know, because I don't have the actual quote in front of me. But All the nudity, all the cussing, all the murders, all the yeah, drugs. Yeah, they're families. <laughs> but these did really well in urban neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, fucking money's raking in. So, you know, and she goes, yeah, we'll put this out. Yeah, you know, you make it, we'll distribute it. You know, like. Solomon Burke did the music for us. One of the positive points in this film, you know, everybody knows Solomon Burke, and um, it was produced by Gene Rogers' brother, Gene Corman. Gene, you know, Gene did some wacko side gigs to Roger. You know, he did Capone, that Split Beaver, uh, Susan Blakely film. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Ben Gazzaro's in it, but that's all we remember from that one. Uh, <laughs> it's not a great film, and actually, Pam, who's been doing some starring roles at this point she's like like maybe 10th build or so and she just gets lost in the shuffle um not a great film not a terrible film if you're a fan of black exploitation movies i wouldn't say stray away from it you know you might want to check it out but it's just not the best of anything and pam is really just lost in the shuffle here i would say yeah, and it's funny because you mentioned about the only thing you remember about the components, the split beaver thing. We were at a friend's house the other week, and somehow Patrick Stewart came up, and I kept referring to him like I always do as Baldy, because we were talking about the Star Trek films, mm. and I never liked Picard. I never cared for him there. I never really cared for him as Professor X. Mm. He's just kind of an asshole to me. So they were all shocked at this and got a big laugh. I was like, yeah, you know, he's a Sir Patrick whatever, and he did all this stuff, and but no, he's just baldy. I'm like, yeah, that's what he is. I think he's an asshole. So it's the same thing. You just kind of you hone in on one thing, and it just kind of stands out for you like a sore thumb. Yes. <laughs> uh, so next up. Although he's into, he's into rescuing doggies. Oh, that's, that's good. Cool. So yeah. He's got something going for him. Hey. <laughs> uh, I don't know about him personally. It was just his roles are like that. Uh, but Jack Hill's back for the next one. Next one, you go back to the women in prison films for the big birdcage. I can only guess that Corman got the heebie-jeebies after seeing how much further De Leon took it in Women in Cages. So he brings back Jack Hill for another round of softer material. So this time, Pam's actually straight, though you have to wonder, given she's supposedly the girlfriend of Sid Higg, 
That's enough to turn any woman gay. <laughs> at least you have sexy Anitra Ford from Sigh of Evil to look at. <laughs> Vic Diaz is floating around. But a lot of this is Sid and his stumblebum group of revolutionaries sort of trying to break the girls out, sort of just fucking around. And it's several scenes of Pam and Sid fighting only to wind up making out, which is pretty gruesome in and of itself. <laughs> um, it's, it's just another one that turns up in just about any conceivable trailer collection of the 70s. Uh, especially some of the more darker ones, because actually this isn't one of the more darker films, but they they're really good at choosing the the worst moments of these movies to like promote them. You know, you know, it's like uh, perspective audiences, like you're like, oh shit, this nasty, I'm gonna go. You know, but you find out the movie's not as bad as the other one. Yeah, we just lost by yeah by far. Uh, Nietzsche Ford, I always found really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. same here. And and she kind of had like a messed up life because she's like this buxom we thought she was nordic oh i thought she was nordic but no she was like a price is right check you know like hello i will pick door number two okay she did the big birdcage a bigger role for her was invasion of the big girls we all know that movie william smith and she appeared in the longest yard occasional movie appearances and like off the face of the earth and which is kind of you know like Hmm, you know, but, you know, it's like, isn't that someone who did other things? Carol Speed's all also in this. And Carol Speed, odd thing, she, Abby was her big Abby, picture. Yeah. Um, she was in the uh, Dolomite. Blackenstein, wasn't it? Disco Godfather, you know, that one. Wasn't she in Blackenstein, too? She, I thought she was, but apparently she isn't. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I don't know. Blackenstein's, I don't think we ever discussed it. Maybe we will. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty bad. It, it was one of the worst exploitation horrors. <laughs> uh, it was pretty bad. Yeah. So as far as, you know, Pam was, Pam is Pam. Actually, Pam looks extra oomphy in this, though. I will say that. She looks like she went from, uh, I don't know, uh, 30. Well, she was running around in prison shifts and being a frumpy lesbian in the last two. And all of a sudden here she is in, you know, 70s contemporary clothes, tight fitting, whatever. As sad as it is to see her making out with Sid Haig, you know, she is kind of like jumping his bones every five seconds and mud wrestling with him and God knows what else, jumping in his laps. True indeed, sir. But she goes up a scale for Hitman. Yes. So next up is a much better exploitation film. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde himself, Bernie Casey, also from Cleopatra Jones, Black Gun, Sharky's Machine, and Never Say Never Again. Stars in this cheesy exploitation remake of the Michael Caine vehicle, Get Carter, which we talked about in our Michael Caine show recently. Casey, who dressed more obstreperously loud than Kane ever dreamed, hmm. his outfits practically scream pimp or drug dealing hustler, is supposed to be an innocuous hitman, believe it or not, who comes home to bury his dead brother. But when he starts looking at what happened, he runs into a lot of dead ends and info he doesn't like, starting the fact that his brother's partner was none other than Truck Turner's Nate Dinwiddie, his own self, Sam Laws. He can take all that bullshit while screwing various ladies he seems to know in the area, but when he gets threatened by the mob, that's when shit starts to go down. Pam's a porn star who invites him up to her place for a screw before inviting him to one of her porno flicks, where he finds a young relation on screen, apparently roughhoused in performing. She had a film called Young Blood. <laughs> Things just keep getting worse. And if you've seen Get Carter, just make it sleazier, honestly a little more boring, and turn it black spoiler to boot. They're literally note for note. I didn't really like this one when I first saw it. Despite Pan's rather cantilevered rack, yes, she goes buck naked in this one, mm-hmm. and she has a fine body, in case you were wondering. Yes. Uh, we're not wondering. We know. <laughs> <laughs> this time, I enjoyed the sleazier, more 70s feel brought to the Kane original, 
while lamenting at the same time that it lost every bit of that quiet cinematic style in the process. It's a much blunter film and suffers greatly for that, but it picks up its own rather meager merits in the bargain, so hey, in a way it's kind of a wash. Oddball movie. Uh, George Armitage, who directed, uh, who did some interesting movies, but we're discussing his career tonight. He was handled, <laughs> supposedly lore goes, he was handled the script by Gene Corman. There he goes again. Moonlighting from Roger, his brother, who said MGM owns Get Carter. And, you know, black movies make them money, so rewrite this to the black community. So, a first fucking thing that George Armitage did, he also wrote the screen, rewrote the screenplay, it's like he gave everybody the most ridiculous names. We got Tyrone Taggett, Gozelda, that's Pam, Ervell, Sherwood, <laughs> Rochelle. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's like, see, here's a problem, though. When, 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 you, when you have white filmmakers make movies for the, for the urban black markets, and they have no conceivable idea because they don't hang out with people in that way, and they don't know what's going on. They might have seen a few movies to do research, like, oh, you mean their, their name is not John and Joan? And you're like, I think their name might be Gazelda. That's a Tyrone. If ever I've seen a Tyrone. This shit happened a long time. Uh, another big hit for MGM, though. Poster was kind of bland. Yes, Bernie Casey was a star. But, you know, Bernie wasn't always like the suave guy. He became a little later on. He got some good hits. Pam goes right back to the till for one more Yep. There's, well, technically two, but yeah. yeah. Black Mama, White Mama. The Philippines' other major director, Eddie Romero, yes. takes the helm on this one. A remake of The Defiant Ones, where Hooker Pam has to join forces with obnoxious Marxist gunrunner Margaret Markov, because, well, they're chained together on the way to maximum security when Marcos' pals inadvertently let them escape. Sid Haig and Vic Diaz are present and accounted for, and it's a lot easier to watch than her other four women in prison films, since most of the film is just these two on the run across the island, dressed as nuns, hitching rides with farmers, hiding out in the brush, rather than the usual lesbian sadism, tortures, rapes, and prison intrigues. There's even a happy ending of sorts where Pam gets away and Marco gets her comeuppance. Maybe you're supposed to be sad? Yay, commies? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but it's not that bad. Compared to the other ones, it's actually an improvement. Yeah, I agree with you. There's no, I haven't seen a really good poster for this. This is another one. I said this before, though, that they pulled the most lurid or luridy type moments for the trailers. They wanted to get guys in the seats. That's the, that was the deal. You know? So if they showed you, like, implied lesbianism, girl-on-girl uh, -girl shit, and, you know, maybe some sadomasochism, you'd be there, right? <laughs> so uh, John Ashley, playing a bit of a creepier fuck than we usually associate him with, is also in this, and he produced it. <laughs> I don't warm to this film at all because it's it's almost comedic in a sense. Yes. Um, so you've seen it recently for the show, mm -hmm. and so so like we ha we have Sid Hay playing like this thinly veiled like kind of gay cowboy yes. character. I was gonna say he's really gay in this one. Yep, he's really gay, and his buddy's like Vic Diaz, who's like just, well, he's a pimp, but you know, like well, he's 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 his buddy and. <laughs> So then there's Eddie Garcia, who's another Filipino filmmaker, who was also in the, the in Darker Blood Island films. And this thing, he's a very popular Filipino actor. It's it's almost like a mess. Uh, Margaret Markov, who people may remember the name, uh, she was in like 
Run Angel Run, you know, a couple of biker movie, Pretty Maids All in the Row, that infamous Rock Hudson film. Hotbox and the Arena, which we're going to probably get to. I thought she was like this Italian woman, but actually she was like a starlet who was handed around from people to people. Yeah, because like, think of the name, Margaret Markov. She's either Ukrainian or Italian and, you know, this gorgeous blonde woman. But like a Russian, but hey. <laughs> or Russian, yeah, but she, yeah, Russian, Ukrainian, you know, like, mm, fake news. So, uh, <laughs> but she kind of disappeared off the face of the earth within two or three years. I never knew what happened with that. But, which I, makes me think that the arena may have actually been filmed right after this. Because, because Pam's stature rose very highly right after this. And, do you want to do the arena next? Cause yeah, let's jump ahead. Cause the other two films actually come in the same year, 73, but you're right. This does feel like it's earlier. So the arena is technically speaking, even though it's not really, the last of the women in prison films Pam will be subjected to. And already it's a weird one. Directed by Steve Carver, who did Drum and a couple of Chuck Norris films that we discussed in our Chuck Norris show, the cinematographer and apparent fight coordinator was no less than Joe D'Amato, who yeah. we talked about way back when in our rehabilitating Joe D'Amato show. And it's supposed to be a sword and sandal affair, a la Ben Horror or Spartacus to boot. Seriously, Roman slave girls who wind up fighting in the Coliseum, and it gave Corman a chance to repair Greer and Margaret Markova, black mama, white mama. The feel is strange, given the Italian penchant for shooting film under cheesecloth and haze. There's a mincing queen prancing around lipstick and eyeshadow like he just stepped out of Fellini's Satyricon or the Donald Sutherland Casanova. And it's pretty bad, although your occult stars Paul Muller and Rosalba Neri do show up thanks to the Italian co-production. I really don't like this film. I never did. It's a very strange movie. All the posters are really cool for this. So for poster and uh, memorabilia collectors, yeah, yeah. check out the posters and, and on Google. and, and uh, They'd be worth putting up in your house if, if you're single. Um, uh, it's a strange movie. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's like, hmm, you know, you know, Pam Greer now has a bit of a following, and and they want to reteam her. This is why I believe this probably may have been filmed right after the, the previous one we just discussed, because you know this is certainly a, a wind of change as far as Pam's career is concerned. And and this, I, I believe I believe this may have been done right after that the previous film we just discussed, but not released until the after the other two books. Yeah, Joe D'Amato is actually credited as a director in the pseudonym one of his many Michael Otruba in the Italian version. It's like so who did what? You know, he did the cinematography. Uh, you Joe sort of tell that and Joe Dante was the editor of the English version as opposed to the Italian editors of the Italian version. So to this day, unless somebody really asked Pam about this, we don't know what the story is because I really can't find a lot of information about this. Uh, Steve Carver is a pretty good workable director. This might have been something that was out of his hands. You know, like, (laughs) I have no idea what I'm doing here, but, you know, okay. It's not a terrible movie, but it's not what we're used to in terms of quality. But I think coffee should be next, correct? Yeah. yeah. And I really wanted to see that because I was like, oh, Joe D'Amato's involved in Get Resolved. Neri, Paul Muller, mm. I love these people. And I saw it and I was like so underwhelmed. Like, wow. Yeah, it's like, underwhelming, yeah. So, yeah, so coffee, 1973, this is really her breakthrough. You can't get much more primo black exploitation than this. A Jack Hill film 
with Pam Greer and a top-tier jazz funk soundtrack from streetwise poet Roy Ayers. Pam's a nurse by day, killer by night, out for revenge of the dealers to turn her sister into a needle-popping junkie. Her one boyfriend's actually an uptight cop, but when he gets fucked up by the guys after her, it's all-out war. Her other man's a nightclub owner running for Congress, please for hot, on a law and order ticket. Of course, he turns out to be in cahoots with the baddies as well. It's somewhat akin to Cleopatra Jones, but much grittier, with a lot more sex. She alternates between trying to seduce the baddies and wanting to nearly rape by them before the inevitable kill, and a whole lot more violence. She's kind of a terrible actress at this point, with some of her line delivery being laugh-out-loud funny, it's so bad. But she'd improve, and it's hard not to love her as a female Charlie Bronson of sorts. The best part of the film is this flamboyant pimp named George. King George, who even gets his own theme song courtesy of Ayers. His scenes, especially his strut down the street to the tune of his own special song, are always a great source of laughs. George, my main man, he's a pimp, he's a pusher, King George. There's really no name stars in this one, bar the ubiquitous Sid Haig, but you probably won't care given all the exploitable and unintentionally comedic elements on tap here. In a lot of ways, this is actually my favorite of her films. <laughs> Al- Alan Arbus is in this who, who would be pop up throughout the rest of the 70s and early 80s in a couple of roles nice Jewish guy with curly hair he would turn up in the oddest movies usually as a baddie usually as well not always but sometimes you know because he was like I, you know you would think I was a nice Jewish guy but I was a fucking pig he would do bad stuff you know? yep. so it's like Hmm. Yeah, but this pushed her over the edge as far as like notoriety and the soundtrack sold, and and everybody's like going along with the ride. <laughs> Sid Haig, Sid Haig, another you know Jack Hill took care of his people. You know he 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 took care of Sid Haig. He would pop him in whenever he could into a lot of these things. Almost as bad as Dick Miller. Yeah, but you know Dick Miller has a thing, had a thing, you know, and and I respect that. Like what? Who else would? People are like, who's going to hire Dick Miller? He's got to eat. You know, let's put him in this. <laughs> um, this movie made over two and a half times his budget, which which back in those days was nice. You know, it's an AIP film. It's American International Pictures. But no direct Corman involvement. So this, is, this probably went directly around and about. Who knows the intricacies of, of Studio low budget productions at this time, but this did really well. Pam looks thinner in this film, I would say, to the point where her bosom really stands out because she lost no weight up there. <laughs> Unusual movie though, it's a revenge film where the drug aspect of it is like, oh shit, like they're trying to shoot her up. You know, it's an odd movie, but that's part of the course of these black exploitation films at the time. You know, she's taking revenge for her own sister's addiction, but she almost gets hooked on heroin during the course of the movie. But that Correct happens though? in a lot of her films, the exploitation films, yes. to the point where my wife, at one point, we were watching this stuff back when, said, oh, is it a Pam Greer film? Oh, did she get raped in this one? Did they shoot her up with drugs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so next up, she actually, you mentioned the MGM connection, she does Scream, Blackula Scream. Weird mm. but entertaining sequel to the William Marshall exploitation horror that cast Pam as the adoptive successor to a dying voodoo Mama Loa. Her actual son, this cock-sporting skinny Barry White by way of Prince type, decides to get revenge, but foolishly uses the bones of old Prince Mama Walde in his ritual. Bang, Blackula's back, and the poor schmucks is Renfield. Don Mitchell, the guy who pushed Raymond Burr around an Ironside, is the cop looking to all the murders around the voodoo cult. Likeable or not, this is no Blackula. Any sense of gravitas is missing. The humor is decidedly toned down, and worst of all, there's no Gene Page soundtrack. 
About the best you get is Blackula taking down a pair of pimps slash muggers who think they found a mark in this fancy-talking dude in a cape and a nice scene at a party where they talk African artifacts as a precursor to ostensible romance. But this isn't even on the level of Count Jorgen its sequels. It's a watchable 70s horror black exploitation crossover, but not a pimple on the ass of its forebear. Coach Craig T. Nelson gets a quick bit as a cop. That's really all there is to it. It's definitely watchable, but compared to the original, nah. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, Bob Kelgen, who who worked on the uh, the, the Count Yorger films, and they're very creepy. No, no two ways about oh, yeah. it. You know, the first one more so than the second, but the second one's. And don't forget the death master. <laughs> and the death master, the one that hardly anyone talks about. Yes, uh, they're all three very creepy fucking films. And so, you know, he he directed this sequel to Blackula. The thing is, though. Blackula was a movie that theoretically shouldn't have worked. We knew what it was going in, but somehow Marshall's performance mm -hmm. and, and everybody rose up to that. That was in the supporting cast. And then suddenly we had a way above average movie mm -hmm. that happened to be in the horror genre. This could have worked, but I just can't figure out, you know, maybe we had studio pop studio interference popping in there saying, Oh, let's just throw in some voodoo, let's throw in some of this, let's throw in some of that, and then it's a mess. And probably why, you know, it's just, you know, this is 72, this is 73 film. 72 to 74, maybe 75 is, is the height of the black exploitation market. And you have one of these pictures that's not making in big bucks, and this is one of them. That's probably why we didn't see another Blackula film. Yeah, it's a bit of a disappointment. Even the trailers... Couldn't jazz up some jism for the movie. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. And, 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 you know, we, we, Pam is the first, you know, top billed female in those pictures as a voodoo priestess. And we couldn't even get a good performance out of her. You know, just like she was there, you know. William Marshall's terrific as always, but he, he's trying to, I think, overcompensate for the fact that he knows the rest of the picture has problems. Oh. I got some good news for you. Okay. Is there breaking Fox News? I know Fox News poll <laughs> released just now, saying that because Trump has been saying the things he's been saying on Twitter, 42% opposes impeachment, which is pretty big for Fox News. Well, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I know. Adam McConnell's double down. Adam McConnell. All right. Shit, that fuck, motherfucker. So, we're going to go to Foxy Brown next. Yes, so Foxy Brown, Jack Hill's back at the helm for this <laughs> de facto sequel to Coffee. But it's so far from that film in certain ways, it's obvious why they didn't want to tie the two films together so directly. One of the slightly qualified positives here is a Willie Hutch soundtrack revolving around a truly killer theme song. But while the soundtrack as a whole is certainly good enough in its own right, it's still a definite step down from Roy Ayers, and honestly, what wouldn't be? With a psychedelic opening right out of the James Bond series, this one mm -hmm. features Huggy Bear Antonio Fargus as her brother. I'm mad at him, he's kind of an asshole. Who calls her from an all-night hot dog joint to save his beautiful black ass, as he puts it, from mobsters coming to collect on his losses running a numbers racket. She shows up and runs the car right up on the sidewalk to take down the baddies, driving all around town with this guy hanging off her hood before dumping him in the river, and that's just the first five or ten minutes. But he's not her only problem. Apparently her boyfriend this time is a G-man who gets gunned down by the local syndicate. So once again, she's going to find those responsible, even if that means selling herself as a hooker, to get her in a high-powered drug and call girl racket. There's a scary butch broad and her John Davidson-type boyfriend running this racket, but she's the real saddest, so things get a bit too dark when they suss her out, complete with some heavily implied S&M, rape, and torture, getting her hooked on heroin, calling in the Panthers to pull Lorena Bobbitt on the guy, and turning the tables on the butch broad, making her a junkie whore roll credits. 
wow, what the fuck did we just sit through here? The fashions are much more stylish and very au courant for the mid-70s. They've got a nice spread with lots of low lighting, wood paneling, Italian red-shaded ornate lamps, the whole nine yards. Plus, Pam looks damn fine in that long hair wig. There's definitely lots of sex here, too, but where Coffee felt more triumphant, Foxy Brown feels... I don't know, she's more the victim and a put-upon ingenue than the Grim Avenger she was last time around. She's less Bronson and more Active Vengeance slash Rape Squad or the Sherry Cafaro Ginger series. So while it's better acted, has Huggy Bear in the cast and looks nicer in respect to the visuals and costuming, it's still a bit baffling why this is the one everyone remembers and seems to love when Coffee's loves in many ways a superior film. I can tell you which one I'd rather see, at least in terms of tone and message. Oh, I have to completely agree with you on everything you said. Um, I really do. It's weird, yes. This is the one, well, you know, Foxy Brown. You know, it's it's got a catchphrase. It's got a name. And Jack Hill's back. Buzz Fightin's, Fightin's uh, produces, and he was like a go-to guy for, for uh, AIP and MGM later on. He did a couple, like, interesting films some of which we covered in all other actors' work. Yeah, you know, the, the, the movie's like a follow-up to Coffee, and then it takes this dark side. When they hook her on drugs, she gets raped and more than once, and then becomes this, this, this S&M thing going on. And even with the semi-pseudo-positive ending, if I could say it, or come up to the ending, you know, like the, the build-up, it's like, okay, Willie Hutch is back doing the music, but it doesn't, it does not do too much. You know, Peter Brown, who a lot of people liked, and uh, he did a lot of American TV back in the day. Handsome guy. Yeah, you, you name check John Davidson, right? Uh, yeah, he was, he, it was brunette, so, you know, maybe darker John Davidson, but it was a handsome guy. He disappeared. I think he died early of cancer or something, but. Interesting to see him play a baddie and such a low-life scumfuck bastard. <laughs> And here's the thing, you know, yeah, coffee is so much better, and this is so much more remembered. But as I said earlier, I think because the name is snazzy and you know rolled off your tongue like like good jizz from a girl, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> I have to earn my name phrase after right. all. Uh, I it's it's just like it's too damn. Yeah, I'm gonna say it, it's too damn dark. It's too damn sleazy. I'm sorry. Now, even if we were talking about golden age porn films, which we have discussed in the past, and I hope we get to it. hand the guy boyfriend's dick in a jar and then turn it to a hooker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've discussed we, we've discussed lots of things over the couple of years we've been doing this. And this is like, this is a major picture. And we just hoped it would be better. Actually, here's a, here's a quote I'm going to rip off of Wikipedia of all places. Woman did a book, Women of Black Exploitation, where she actually criticized this film for disturbing, in quotes, portrait of black womanhood. Yeah, it's a disturbing fucking film. I think Pam probably did it to Coffee did really good. This did tremendous. Three times its money, or more than three, four times its money, five times its money, you know, five times its budget. And she did this because, you know, she doesn't have to do those other kind of movies anymore. And, you know, we're working with AIP, distributed by AIP now, you know, not MGM, but this would improve. It's a dark, fucked up fucking film. Who do we play? Jack Hill? I don't know. But it's, I think the thing is, and I, I'm going to speak on this, and uh, speak on this, and I think you just mentioned it. People will see Foxy Brown before they will see Coffee because they think, oh, Foxy Brown's the one. 
and they're going to be turned off because it's such a dark film, and the char- her character goes through so much dark stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's unsavory. It's unsavory, even for those who like unsavoriness. It's like that's too much. Well, there's a few out there, but fuck you. Um, <laughs> it's not like well, Coffee was the you know the nicest film on earth. You know, she almost gets yes. raped and whatever the hell else in there, but. This one is just nasty. Wow. It's nasty. Yeah. Even I say it's nasty. You know, if I say it's nasty, it's nasty. <laughs> but things get better with Sheba. Yeah. So Sheba, baby, she's kicking ass and taking names, or so goes the theme song to this William Girdler epic, that for a change doesn't involve animal attacks or possession by Indian or demonic spirits. Girdler's philosophy, that's pretty much all it was. He manages to gather not only Greer, but Twisted Brain and Assault on Precinct 13's Austin Stoker, plus Fred Williamson and Dolomite sidekick Derville Martin as one of the main baddies. Martin and his pals are coming around busting up her father's insurance company office, setting car bombs and trying to kill folks' protection racket style, because the big cop above him is actually, wait for this, a rival insurance salesman. Damn, business competition was tough. <laughs> Basically, Pam's an ex-cop turned private dick who used to get some private dick from daddy's business partner, Austin Stoker, so now that she's back in town, she's not only trying to get to the bottom of all this nonsense, but trying to get back in Stoker's pants or vice versa. She's got a short, nasty Nichelle Nichols do here, and Gurley didn't exactly set the world on fire in his brief career, so it's really not as likable as her other primary movies. But if you're just looking for a decent, reasonably streetwise Pam Greer film where she's got the upper hand over the baddies and she's not afraid to roughhouse them a bit, you could do much worse than this. That was a fun movie. Pam looks magnificent. Poster collectors, get the poster for this. She looks hot. Yeah, Daryl Martin, you know, I, I don't know if you saw the uh, Dolomite movie with Eddie Murphy yet. No. I, I, you have to see that. You really have to see that. Wesley Snipes, who who could possibly be nominated for his portrayal of Daryl Martin as a, a boo-swilling freak. <laughs> uh, so, obviously, somebody knew something we didn't know. He's, he's really good in that. But Daryl Martin is character. And so, it's almost like he's a character playing a character. So, <laughs> Austin Stoker, I always, I love Austin Stoker because he's in one of our favorite films, which is... Salt on Precinct 13? Salt on Precinct 13. Oh, that film is great. So it's one of Carpenter's that best. Great. Yeah. One of Carpenter, Carpenter's best, John Carpenter's best, and he's like, he's the fucking man in that movie. Oh, and we talked it in a Carpenter show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a what a guy. A nice guy too. I I, I interviewed him not filmed uh, years ago. Oh, a long time ago when I started out doing this. Nice man, really nice guy, and he was good. He was a good actor too. I mean, he was he was like schooled. You know, he was like theater. One of these guys who came from theater. It's a good film. And so what we're saying is, if I can speak for both of us. If the last film left you with a really bad taste in your mouth. Yeah, this will clean it. Cleanse your palate. This, yeah, this will cleanse your palate. It's a much better film. Homogenized a little bit, I think, but it's 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 a more fun Pam film. And w- William Girdler directed this. You know, his, his, you know, his CV isn't huge, but, you know, he he, he just directs some weird shit. <laughs> but, you know, The Zebra Killer, which is early Austin Stoker film. Uh, way before this, but it's also taken from one of those early serial killer things. And Austin was also an Abbey with Carol Speed, which we, we name-checked earlier. But Girdler was, you know, on the periphery of doing interesting movies. Grizzly, Day of the Animals, that kind of stuff. You know, like animal attacks, humans kind of thing, which I have a problem with, and maybe you do as well, uh, I'm presuming. 
Manitou, which was his last film. A lot of people have a problem with that. I actually enjoy it. I always it like that one. Tony Curtis is great. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Curtis is great in that. And, and, and it's weird. Strange films he made. But this is an odd movie. But it's it's a good, safe pan movie. So we can leave it at that. Yes. So uh, next up, she does a film that's better, but has its own issues. This is actually, I kept asking him about this when I ran into Fred Williamson himself, and he just kind of gave me a, a knowing smirk, like, yeah, really, you can make me bring that one up? <laughs> Bucktown! One of Blaxploitation's other go-tos, besides Jack Hill, Arthur Marks, who was uh, involved with things like Detroit 9000, Friday Foster, J.D.'s Revenge, directs this oddity that co-stars Fred the Hammer Williamson, Pam Greer, and my man Thomas Rasula again, with Carl Weathers showing up as one of the thugs. The music sucks this time, and the feel is more of a spaghetti western than a black exploiter. Frank comes back home to Chicago for his brother's funeral. Turns out he ran a bar and refused to pay for protection from the local cracker cops, so he winds up sticking around, taking over the clothes of the bar, banging his brother's ex, and running into the same problem. So he calls in his old gangbanger pals to clean shit up. So far, so good, right? Problem is, then they get big ideas, and moving on the racket, they just force the cops and their pals out of, even trying to move in on Pam. So now Fred's got to take on his old buddies instead. It's pretty gritty, despite the presence of that ubiquitous little obnoxious kid that turned up in so many of these films around that time. I don't know his name. And while Pam overacts nearly as badly as she did in Coffee, it's hard not to like this one, however unblacksporter like it is at core. One of my favorite Fred Williamson films, that's for sure. Arthur Marks, the director, is such a curious fucking figure in film. This guy worked on MGM musicals, and like for like most of his career... He was already elderly when he got into black exploitation films. Go figure. But he died in 2019, which is like November. Uh, he just passed away, November 13th. He was 92. So Arthur Marks was a PA on The Wizard of Oz. Whoa, just that <laughs> one. Boys Town, The Good Earth, you know, production assistant. He worked on The King Mutiny. This is a guy, he's a journeyman. Not related, uh, sometimes said he was related to like Groucho and Chico. No, no, different Marks family. But he's been involved in musicals for most of his life. And here's the thing. For somehow, for some reason, he, he got to directing a score of black exploitation films. After that, of, of which he then pretty much stuck to television for many, many years. Uh, Maddox, Starsky and Hutch, Dukes of Hazzard, you know, Ad Infinitum. But some of his, some of his, I, you know, I hate to say black exploitation. I don't know what they call these things, urban films. I mean, some of us work with these things are pretty on point, though. This is this is the one where it's a it's, it's not a western, but it's an urban western, right? And, and you know, Phil Williamson is fine in this. Thomas is back. Yes, that Thomas. Tony King. Tony King, who will show up in a couple of Italian films later on in his career, a few years down the road. Carl Weathers is in this thing. And, like, where's Carl Weathers today? He's in Star Wars? All right, go ahead. Wake me up. <laughs> but Pam Greer is, is, I think she's okay in this. You know, she's just not. I'm sorry. When you when you got, like, a big dick swinger like Fred Williamson as your star, it's like, it don't matter whoever. You're going to be a bit player. <laughs> You're a bit player, yeah. It's it's a but Bucktown is a fine film. It's it's not bad. It's it's revenge kind of flick, which almost everybody just can't excel that, you know. Um, I've seen it. I saw it in the theater. It's a fun movie. I saw it again for the show. It's just that like, doesn't matter who else is in this movie, you know. Once 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 Fred throws a cigar in his mouth, like all right, you know. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> when he's not hearing a fucking kid. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Friday Foster. So next up, Friday Foster. Arthur Marks returns with an odd sideways skew of what by now has become a typical Pam Grier starring film. The sex is massively toned down. She doesn't get to play yes. a hooker, vigilante, or a rape victim even. It's an adaptation of a popular syndicated comic strip, and it's jam-packed with exploitation names. Besides yes. Pam, you get Carl Action Jackson Weathers, Eartha Kitt, Godfrey Cambridge of Beware the Blob and Cotton Comes to Harlem, Julius Harris of the two Black Caesar films, Living Let Die, Superfly, and Trouble Man, Scatman Crothers of Hong Kong Fooey, Black Bill Jones, Truck Turner, and Slaughter's Big Ripoff, Ted Lang of Watt Stacks, and of course the Love Boat, Love Trick Boat. Baby, the Love Boat, and Black Bill Jones, Thalmus Rasulala of Blackula, Will of Dynamite, and Cool Breeze, and Yafik Koto of Bone Drum across 110th Street, Truck Turner, and Living Let Die. They even grabbed Mr. Magoo and Thurston Howell himself, Jim Backus, for this one. <laughs> Whew, too bad it sucks. <laughs> I love how you squeeze that in. They even grabbed Mr. Magoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, too bad it sucks. Pam, I mean Friday, sits through a hit on the world's richest black man who's Rasulala, and the knifing of her model pal before she decides finally to get up off her ass and find out what the hell's going on against her boss Harris's orders, and with Private Dick Cotho as a de facto partner. Seriously, this one's so staid. It feels like a late 70s TV episode of some Aaron Spelling detective show, and even the music sounds like that. It's by far the worst of Pan's primary pictures, but clearly had the most money sunk into it and attracted the most talent you're likely to see in a single black exploitation film, period. Maybe because of the mild politics of this, where it's all some kind of plot against blacks getting political power? I don't know, but... It's really yawn-inducing, sexless, and action-minimal, so much that it's questionable if you can even file it under the header of exploitation film in the first place. Pass on this one. You'll thank me for it. I, well, I think the year was 1975, so we're, we're, we're like really into the Roger Moore Bond thing, so I'm going to make the connection now. So they're trying to move Pam into this different kind of aesthetic. They're trying to move her into like safer mm-hmm. territory yeah. to, to appear to more Caucasian i.e. white audiences, white audience, yeah. and, and and they know this. They can do it. So Arthur Marks, you know, comes back, and he wrote the script, and, you know, I'm not name-checking or blaming anyone. You know, I think he, he at this point in time, he's like, I think I could do this with Pam, but we're going to use all these popular actors who are well-known for these, these films and, you know, that want to work on this. And it's almost a homogenized Pam Greer movie. It's almost like, we're going to put some action action into it, but we're not going to make it on the body and scale, but we're going to kind of make it kind of like put some intrigue, some governmental espionage, because that does take place in this film. And I think it hurt the movie in a bit, because it's like we've introduced her and kind of pegged her as this kind of character, and then suddenly we're going to move her into something else. It's not wholly unentertaining, but it's a, it's a big surprise if you're following Pam Grier movies and also you end up with Friday Foster and expecting something else. Yeah, especially since, like I said, it takes her a while before she even gets so fast and tries to do anything. Like, oh, yeah, everyone's mm. getting killed around, including my friends. Yeah, whatever. Like, you know, maybe I should look into this. <laughs> so it doesn't paint her in the best of lights in the first place. So next up, she does, like you said, something completely right, you know, whoop. Off into the left field here, which is drum. A year prior, yes. boxer Ken Norton starred against James Mason, Susan George, and Perry King in a proto-roots or bigger-budgeted quadroon sort of affair about horny plantation owners who get a little too close to the servants. This time around, 
While Ken Norton is still present in Boxing for Entertainment, the lead role in All But Names taken by Yafik Koto is his more politically-minded buddy, Blaze. This time, Norton doesn't give in to the even more wide-ranging and perverse sexual blackmail, but winds up set up Me Too style anyway. The John Colicos character is quite gay and causes a lot of problems for Norton and Koto when the former refuses his advances, with Koto paying the price instead. It all ends up with a huge riot, some rather gross if symbolic comeuppance for our killer queen, and a very similar ambiguous ending with Norton running off his credits roll. Surprisingly big budget for its type. This one pulls in not only Pam, Norton, and Koto, but Warren Oates, Cheryl Rainbow Smith, the British character actress Fiona Lewis of Fearless Vampire Killers and Dr. Fives Rises Again, the Jack Palance Dracula, Renee Cardona's oversexed Jaws ripoff Tintorero with Susan George. There's a lot of people in it. And I guess if you're into this sort of thing, there was actually an Emmanuel film, or such was called, which was uh, an Italian exploitation, which is based on the same idea, you know, slave owners and getting involved with the slaves or whatever the hell. This very small subgenre of sort of roots exploitation sort of films. If you're into those, all right, you know, it's watchable, it's passable. But is it a good film? I wouldn't call it that. It's, it's just kind of strange. Oh, yeah, it's another one I have to agree agree with you. Isla Vega, who was like a thing at this time period, South American actresses in this. Fiona Lewis, you know, hottie British actress who was in some sexploitation films from Over the Pond is, is in this. Royal Dano, good character actor. Cheryl Rainbow Smith, you know, uh, Lamora, and allegedly, and allegedly some porno is in this. Ken Norton, world champion. This Warren Oates, who I would have thought better of, but maybe he needed to eat. Everybody's <laughs> got to eat. Lucian Ballard was the cinematographer on this. This guy won fucking Academy Awards. He'll go figure. The deal is Burt Kennedy, you know, after Hal Needham, another go-to for, like, car chases and good old Southern boy stuff, was directing this. And then Dino De Laurentiis, of all people, fucking fired him. So I'm like, probably mis- wasn't making it sleazy enough. And Steve Carver, uh, who we just discussed, uh, was brought in to finish it. So I don't know. You know, between this, Mandingo, the original, you know, the, the prequel to this, I guess, and Drum, you know, this is two fucked up movies, really. I have to say, you know, it's like, so, okay, let's get down to basics. There's this thing for BBD and like white chicks, right? So, like, so. <laughs> If you don't know that, we're not going to explain it. <laughs> so, so, so here's the thing. You know, so, you know, we're talking about plantation owners and whipping the slaves and there's the white chicks working on the, like the, the women who own the plantations or the wives or the daughters or whatever. And then the big hunky, well, well bit, well built, well manicured black slave. I am embarrassed. <laughs> For, for, I'm embarrassed for the prize fighters who've been in these movies who, who, who would accept these roles. Like, what are you guys nuts? <laughs> I don't care. What are they paying you? Yeah. You know, and I'm embarrassed for any cast member. And that brings us to Pam Greer. Come on, Pam. You are much better than this. The FX code is crazy. So I get that. But, but like, Pam, you were so much better than this to even appear in this thing. Because this is our Pam Greer show, so I'm doing a shout-out to Pam. Pam, if you ever listen to this, but I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but like, to the prize fighters, come on, really. I mean, it's like, this is what it's about. And But this thing made money. Oh, yeah, they were big back then. They were big back then, and there were, thankfully, there weren't too many European... Like I said, Quadroon, uh, Passion Plantation was another name for the Emmanuel film I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. 
maybe one or two others. It, it really wasn't that many. Yeah, thank God, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's actually it like, it's a smaller yeah. genre than Nazi exploitation. What does that say? <laughs> and, and it was nasty without it being. Because you knew right away what it was. It's probably based on reality, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, it's like, oh, come on, man. Yeah, well, at least it's not Audio Uncle Tom or whatever the hell that one was. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. But we, we both know things we can't talk about, so we're going to leave it at that. <laughs> All right. So Grease Lightning? Yeah. She does two more films, Grease Lightning, which is where she met Richard Pryor, God help her, and uh, Twilight of Love. I didn't see either of those. And then she drops out for a couple of years. Yeah. Grease Lightning was a, uh, yo, uh, Richard Pryor, yo, he, he, he was like fucking amazing, yo. you know. We know maybe one day we'll do a Richard Pryor show, yo. Richard Pryor is a comedian, a stand-up, and he was just Boom! He's, he's smart. He made mistakes, but he was smart. He was he was bang. He knew how to tap into things. He did a few movies prior to this. Uh, nothing too hot, but there were a couple of things that brought him to notice. Now Michael Schultz, also also African American, was which a lot of people don't know. Michael Schultz was part of as the director of this. So yo, know, Grease Lightning's about NASCAR, first African American NASCAR uh, race race winner. He's always got some good people in the kids. He's got uh, Bo Bridges, Jeff's brother. Why do I say that? Because Jeff's more popular. And so I believe on little Vincent Garduti. Richie Havens is in this when Richie was doing bit parts. And, you know, Pam is like sort of pseudo love interest to Richard Pryor. The thing is, this movie did not really bring in people. It did okay. Pam's okay. You know, the whole cast is okay. It's based on real life people and incidents. Problem is, you got you got your urban audiences, so you got your urban areas, you know, Chicago, Detroit, New York, uh, blah blah blah, z blah, and then you got the rest of America, and so that's where your race car movies play to. So you throw your your race car movies to the to Midwest, and you know they're gonna go, they're not gonna go, and you know this is a true to life film, but. To go. Oh, no, Margaret, that's the more about the black guy that won the race. You want to see it? Nah, fuck that shit. <laughs> yo, so, yo, so it didn't do tremendous, but, but Pam did allegedly meet Richard on this. It's a bio picture, you know. And then... There's a break of like four years. I'm, I'm guessing it may have partially had something to do with the fact that they weren't really making black exploitation pictures anymore. Maybe she's trying to regroup, find a new niche, but who knows? Well... I, I, okay, so I researched Pam and, aside from Wikipedia, I researched Pam and there was a thing going on with Richard and she sort of got involved in it and it, it might have been to do with substances. And so, yo, hey, look, when you were a partner who's in deep and, and you get in deep and then you have to extricate, it, look, it's like, all right, let's not even talk about that. You get into a bad relationship. And you love that person, but it's a bad relationship. You know that. And it's toxic. What do you do? You have to extricate yourself from that relationship, right? So, you know, four or five years later, she, show, she shows up in probably one of Paul Newman's oddest films ever. <laughs> yeah, it's actually one of the few that I actually have of his, if, if not the only one. Uh, Fort Apache, The Bronx. I always mm. love this film. It's a fun, gritty, very New York cop film of the period that mixes the tropes and feels 70s classics like The 7-Ups and The Laughing Policeman with the more socially minded mm. likes of Serpico. There's a lot of name talent here, or at least many who would be, with Paul Newman as their somewhat drunken but good-hearted lead, 
Ed Asner is his grumpy fascist new boss. Danny Aiello, who just passed, and future wise guy Ken Wall as fellow beat cops, and Pam Greer in a small but important role, which in a surprisingly realistic twist winds up sidelined and forgotten despite catalyzing everything else that happens in this movie. Pam's a junkie hooker who goes around killing cops. The local precinct, despite being in the middle of the worst area of the city, just got a new captain, who's Asner, who doesn't get the trickiness of dealing with a ghetto community, goes on a mass manhunt, pulling locals in by the dozen and arresting them for everything possible. Ice. Uh, <laughs> the locals protest all the fascist treatment and start yelling about police brutality, eventually storming the station and surrounding the place, chanting and throwing stuff. It builds fast. It gets pretty scary. Even though Pam winds up dead herself... They never figure out that she was the killer. They just have to deal with this massive and ongoing shitstorm that it caused. Nothing ever gets resolved. There's a true-to-life ebb and flow of events and degree of trouble. Even in his personal life, Newman has problems like how his sort of hot girlfriend and nurse is also a needle-popping junkie who overdoses and dies on him or how he has to cross the thin blue line and go to Serpico when he sees a squad mate throw a kid off the top of a roof during a chase. It's not mm. easy to have a conscience and a heart when you're dealing with hardline fascists on one side and all this racial business plus plenty of drugs, muggings, and worse on the other. In fact, it leaves anyone with both a heart and a brain kind of out there on their own with no, quote, team to sign up and join, left or right. And how true to life is that, especially here in 2020? So this is actually, in a weird way, a relevant film. But I always enjoyed it anyway, regardless. It's a really, you know, I mentioned to you off air Paul Newman, and this is a really good Paul Newman film. And, and you know, he's done a lot of, he's quirky. He's, he, he, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tag this guy for any particular thing. He's done some really unusual work every other film, I would have to say. And it's probably why he's so well loved, uh, you know, respected, you know, did good things for Lots of different co- good causes. Still is. Yeah. He in his past, the past life, because he passed away. Unusual movie for him. It just it's, it's this time period when things are gritty and it's rough. Yeah, Pam's Pam's contribution to this. Yeah, you 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 pretty much nailed it. You know, she's she's what her role is, and she kind of disappears. But it's all Paul Newman's movie. Uh, great cast though. Like wow. But it's like a downer fucking movie because, like, hey, I like this character. Oh, they die. They die. Yep. They die. They die. Well, Until we get. <laughs> it's realistic. Yeah, yeah. It's a good film, actually. You guys should see it. Pam Greer fans, well, she's down in the. Um, she's down in the list. You might want to see it for her into this, but she she does more fun stuff after this. Yeah. So uh, next up is something wicked this way comes. I love this movie. Do you really? Oh, well, you won't like what I said. <laughs> stupid ass. Fuck you. <laughs> stupid no. ass overrated film version of the Ray Bradbury story about fucking kids. Yep, it's a Stranger Things. I hate kids. I hate kids. It's a Stranger Things for the early 80s, where two pork pie hat and trousers sporting newsies types, one of whose mom is then much faded Diane Ladd, try to save their oblivious small town from a traveling carnival whose sinister magic and malevolence are never really explained. There's this nasty barker who spends all his time chasing the kids down and fighting old man Jason Robards, a carousel that leaves riders aging or getting younger, some business where you can steal the years of your past life by tearing pages from a book, and Angela Reseto is still alive, so they give him a bit part as the resident carnival midget. None of this shit makes the least bit of sense. It's not explained. There's really no purpose except to reinforce Midwestern values and family. Pam Greer takes what would usually be the Laura Gemser role as the mysterious trophy character, the Dust Witch, who, like just about everything and everyone else in the film, is left entirely unexplained, except that she can sort of prophesy and appear as, quote, beautiful enough to drag answers out of victims. It turns out to have, like, a voodoo mask-style death-like visage, though she's not concentrating on her targeting. 
She's sufficiently mysterious, reasonably attractive, and uses method-style physicality in her movements and her hand gestures. So in a way, it's one of her better performances, but there's really not much for her to do otherwise. This hails from the brief period where Disney took the vaguely occult underpinnings and live-action thing that they were doing the prior decade with stuff like Witch Mountain films and amped up the darkness, resulting in the amazingly dark and metaphysical The Black Hole, the bizarre Elliot Gould, Bill Cosby, Devil, and Max Devlin, which she spoke to in our Elliot Gould show, and a few lesser entries like Watcher in the Woods and This Stinker. You could tell there were issues right out of the gate. Bradbury butted heads with Disney. He pulled out in an early stage. There were name actors in the running for the lead baddie, but they chose a low-rent nobody instead. And worst of all, the studio actually found the film too dark, first swapping out the original score for something lighter, and then pulling all sorts of overtime reshoots and re-edits to make it safer for the kiddies. As you can tell, this is the last of the company's overtures towards more mature, darker-themed films. And then they went right back in the middle American schmaltz and musical kid stuff to much acclaim thereafter, starting with The Little Mermaid and going on to things like Beauty and the Beast, Mulan, and whatever they put out last week, probably another Frozen or some shit. But anyway, you slice it, it doesn't work. And sadly, while the thought was appreciated, it first came too late. The darker stuff was more of a 70s thing than the Reaganite pipe dream Dayglow 80s could endure. And secondly, it only really resulted in one true work of art, which actually remains one of my all-time favorite sci-fi films, the aforementioned Black Hole, which I can't recommend enough. But this one, yeah, didn't work for me. So what's your take, which is obviously very different? Oh, well, no, no, I mean, not as lengthy a, a response to yours, but when I said I loved it, it has one great scene that... Oops, always sticks with me. And that's when uh, Jason Robards, who's playing a elderly man, is approaching Jonathan Pisces' ill-defined character, who we assume to be one of many things. And he rips a page off the book, and you're going to be older and older and older until, like, he's nearly near death. Great scene. Great scene. One of the best scenes in cinema. I think he's actually removing pages from his life, like, oh, this is memory that's gone. This didn't ever happen. And, yeah, right, right, right. But he's, he's aging and losing his memories. He's losing his life. Great scene. The movie has a lot of problems because, as you already mentioned, like, they, they thought it was too dark. They wanted to lighten it up. They want, you know, it was too light. They removed the score. Let's have this other guy come in and do the score. And it's a problematic film, but now, this is a film I only see once every 10 years, but I'm like, there's, a, there's, there's stuff in it that I still like, you know. And, and Now, Pam Greer, yeah. See, now you mentioned she did things like with gestures and with physicality. So by now she knows how to use movement and physical appearance to, to get her over that hump. She doesn't have to do things we've seen her before. You know, like portray the slut and film that she've done before. This is like a big change for her in, in, in a bit of a different kind of performance. So it's actually a couple years up, but she does Above the Law. This is the film we have to blame for the career of bloated casting couch fifth Dan Grandmaster Steven Seagal. To be fair, his first four films are reasonably watchable and typical of the sort of kickboxing action films of the era. It's only around the time of Under Siege that his head got too big for his britches and things started going downhill, but he's still an asshole. Here he gives a semi-autobiographical voiceover speech about training in Japan under an Aikido master before being shown in Vietnam where he has an issue with torture-happy compatriot based slumming Henry Silva. Of course, this call comes back to bite him in the ass a decade or so later when said teammate, who's now with the CIA, still torturing people and covertly running a drug ring to boot. He's just evil. Otherwise, it's pretty average, if not slightly below average, in that cop or kickboxing film with a puffy and plain-looking Sharon Stone as Seagal's wife and Pam as his melon-suited beat partner. She gets a a lot of lines, but not much to do because, you know, Seagal has to pretend to be Italian. <laughs> well, there's just quite a few good Seagal films up until about, uh, you know, there's just a number of them. This is his first. 
and it's yeah it's raw he no it's I'm trying to find the words man it's raw he was hungry Andy Davis directed he, Andrew Davis did uh, I think The Fugitive The First Fugitive Harrison Ford which is not bad and um, didn't do Code of Silence too for Chuck Norris he did he did which is, is probably Chuck's best movie too right so how about that Chuck's best movie Seagal's best movie Henry Silva's really good he's an evil fuck in this movie you definitely got that right yo <sighs> He looks weird. He he has a very unusual. He has like this aquiline nose, beady eyes, <laughs> but he was still thin. But he moved like a bastard. You know when he did this Aikido shit in this movie, he moved like lightning. And it, it, you know he was able to move like that until he got like a fat fuck. <laughs> but so <laughs> yeah, because what, what are they doing now? Like they cut a lot. Like I'm gonna come towards you. Okay, you're on the floor. Yeah, and he's got that giant Silent Bob trench coat. You know, it's hiding a lot of a lot of grip. Oh, well, like nowadays, yeah, yeah, it's sad actually. I mean, like, hey Steve, you're fucking huge. Lose some weight. So, um, I don't know. But back, back then, back then he was raw. He was hungry. he traded in the Aikido for Doritos. It could be, but no, no, this is I, I, Cheetos. You know, to this day, this Above the Law is a good film. It's good. You know, Henry Silver, you know, God knows how many Euro films he played a crazy evil fucking. He was even more sinister than this. And, and, you know, Henry speaking his own lines in English, I'm going to fucking kill you. You know that, you know. Sorry, that was a little Chris Walken. Who's subject of one of our shows coming up. But, you know, Henry, you know, Henry's Henry. Uh, so, Pam Greer. Yo, know, is is Seagal's like partner who unfortunately dies a little too early into the film, but there's like they they have a little something going on here and it's nice. You know, like you know, he, he seems like to be touched when he, she dies. Uh one of Seagal's best pictures, uh a good A movie for Pam. And here's the thing that still mystifies me to this day. So think about this. Steven Seagal's first movie, you get a guy who just did the fugitive, huge hit for Harrison Ford. Sharon Stone's in this. You know, she's coming off of whatever Sharon Stone thinks she did. Henry Silva is the villain. They give it an aid budget. And I think it really helped this picture. And probably, in hindsight, helped Seagal's career and sustained him for a while. The uneven career he had. How's that? <laughs> All right. So next she does Class of 1999, which I did not see. And Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which I did. Everyone knows and most have some measure of affection for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. A fun, if admittedly really stupid teen comedy about a pair of losers. They would be stoners or drunks like Chi Chin Chong or Bob and Doug earlier in the decade. But this was the safe and bolderized end of the 80s, who wind up going back in time to meet historical personages who they bring back within the past their history exam so they can go on to be a killer metal band who are so influential they create a Demolition Man style society in the future. You can see the Macros Robotech and Macros 7 influence in there as well. To this day, it defines Keanu Reeves for me. I'm sorry, but screw Speed, The Matrix, John Wick, or whatever else, he'll always be Tennis Preston Esquire to me, albeit informed in his most stoner voice. Everybody off the bus! But seriously, does anyone really like Bill and Ted's bogus journey? 
I mean, one bit of Negadeth song aside, it has a terrible post-metal soundtrack full of assholes like Faith No More and Primus, and Otto Preminger's Mr. Freestyle Baddie, a bizarrely unfunny piss take on Ingemar Bergman's Seventh Seal, a weird meeting with Satan, them as ghosts at a seance, evil versions of themselves, robot versions of themselves. It's just a big fucking mess with the overspent, underachiever feel of same era flops as Super Mario Brothers, Howard the Duck, or Masters of the Universe, the latter which is at least weirdly entertaining in its sheer ineptitude. As much as I enjoy the first Bill and Ted, I hate this one with a passion. Frank Welker, the voice of Scooby-Doo and Freddy, is the voice of Satan here. And breakdancer Bruno Taco Falcon shows up as one of the Ted robots. But George Collins barely in this since, wait for this, he's literally transgendered as Pam Greer. What's weirdest about this one, if you haven't seen it, is he probably won't even recognize her. And she's dolled up with big hair to look exactly like White Snake and Rat groupie come video vixen Tony Katayan, who later wind up in the first Witchblade film. So, hey, nice legs, Pam. But it's weird, especially when Carl unzips her to become himself at the end. Again, I can't really stand this film. Well, I'm amazed that they're actually doing a sequel to this. Can you believe it? What they did? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what do we know, right? Yeah. <laughs> With the same guys. But, but but don't discount the John Wick films until after you see them. We'll talk about those later. <laughs> yeah, Pam Greer, you discuss you you mentioned you discuss it. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> so Posse. Uh, Posse. I have not seen Posse. I know it is a bunch of uh it's actually a black exploitation western, if you will, but I have not seen it. Yeah, nineteen ninety three I guess you would call it revisionist western. Mario Van Peebles who at some point in time, it was like a go-to guy for, like, doing stuff. You know, like, oh, let's bring some people in, do some favors, close the books. He wanted to do, like... Uh... He was great in Exterminator, too. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking Mario wanted to do, like, a, uh, a uh, revisionist black exploitation thing. Uh, Pam, you know, she's, she has a small role in this. We, the, the casting is bizarre. We have Robert Hawks in here. Uh, Nipsey Russell, Woody Strode, Aaron Neville, the singer. And Robert Hooks is Trouble Man, for those of you who didn't know. Yeah, thank you. Isaac Hayes is in this. But we have a lot of rappers at the time. Tone Luke, Tone Locke, Big Daddy Keane. And unfortunately, we were, we were running out of budget money, so we threw in Billy Zane and Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> but we really don't you know who's missing from this film, unfortunately. Are they the, the real clear black exploitation? Ex- exploitation stars who are really sorely missing from this. So Posse did surprisingly decent business, made 10 times his budget. Go fucking figure. What do we know as white guys? Uh, <laughs> it, had, it had a rap soundtrack. So, okay, it's Black Breast and a rap soundtrack. It did well. It actually sustained uh, Mario Van Peebles, you know, son of the infamous Melvin. Sweet, sweet back's badass. Yeah. Song, which is yeah, a horrible song, by the way. It, it, but no, it has sustained his career for a long time. And, you know, just Pam is just, she's flotsam and jetsam in a movie that's all machismo. And it's trying to be something hooked onto the emergence of rap. Original Gangsters is, is a lot more fun and actually, I think, closer to what the feel was we were going for. You want to talk about that? I wasn't able to screen this one again for the show, but I did suffer through this piece of crap many years ago when the infamous Texas Twister was still living in his parts and still our best friend instead of the lunatic he later became. Anyway, he picked that one up, and it was probably still on VHS at the time, who knows, for three bucks or something on a whim to watch one that we were staying down by his place, thinking it was going to be this all-star exploitation picture. I mean, everybody was in this one. Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, Pam Greer, Richard Roundtree, Ron O'Neill, even TV stars like Isabel Sanford from the Jeffersons. Can't miss, right? 
Oh, boy. This is a bunch of washed-up foreign black exploitation stars getting together, not for a comedy homage thing like the similarly flawed Wayne Stinker, I'm going to get you, sucker, but a serious picture. Underline that. Serious picture about a bunch of old folks reliving the glory days by pulling out the baseball bats and shit and going out to clean up the neighborhood from young drug dealers and gangbangers. It's so geriatric wish fulfillment. You have to wonder if this was aired at Senior Citizen Homes on Jell-O Night. The wife and I were horrified, not least at our pal's embarrassed attempts to reassure himself that it wasn't that bad, right? Which it really was. These days, I'd probably keep up copy around for a joke, but it'd have to be free or damn close to it. This one was really terrible, and everyone should be embarrassed to have taken part in it. Well, it's, you know, it was directed by Larry Cohen. You know, it's uneven film, like uneven career. You know, sometimes his movies, movies were su- successful, and sometimes they buried themselves into niches like The Stuff uh, and a couple of other films toward the end of his career. From what I heard, some, a nice guy, and from what I also heard, a character. <laughs> so it depends. Um, the only good thing about this is that the, the three stars heavily promoted Williamson, Jim Brown, and Pam McGreer. So it was nice to see her after a couple of years off or away from the silver screen in, in you know, high emergence. You know, there she goes getting heavily promoted. I had a problem with this movie, too. It's just like it could have been better. I see what they want to achieve. Produced by Fred. Maybe just Fred didn't have enough money to support maybe what Larry Cohen's idea was. You know, maybe, the, you know, just it's just... I see what you're saying, geriatric, you know, revenge, and which, you know, we've seen this done, too, before, and it wasn't entirely unsuccessful. It was better than the, uh, I think it was Fred Williamson actually tried to put one together years later that never got finished because didn't have enough of a budget called Transformed, and I know that was on one of those cheap Code Red sets back in the day. It might have been off a street mm, show or something. Mm, right, right. Same idea, but much worse, so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, your heart's in it, your your mind is in it, but if you don't have the money, you know, you can only do so much. So, I, yeah, it's, it's an unsuccessful film, but, you know, Pam's in it, hey. <laughs> but, but we can say the same from Escape from L.A. Yes, so Escape from L.A. Whew, John Carpenter in the midst of the absolute nadir of his career decides it'd be a wise move to revisit one of his earlier greater successes, something to be involved in some degree of several times throughout the 90s and early millennium, if only to sell the rights and give his insincere blessing. Oi, in this case, he reworks, both poorly and unnecessarily, not only what was once a mature, well-directed, well-acted, very influential post-apocalyptic sci-fi film of the early 80s, to deliver a pallid, pointless, overly bombastic version of the same that feels very much like an angry old man pissing all over his youthful successes, like an Alzheimer-afflicted Sinatra smashing all his 50s recordings, if you will. This time, it's L.A. that's the Badlands. Stacy Keach in the Lee Van Cleef role, rat-faced Steve Buscemi in the Ernest Borgnine role, some no-name in the Susan Hubley role, and a chew all the fucking scenery and carpeting off the set, freak-out, overacting, former cast member of, wait for it, my so-called life, as the Patty Hearst president's daughter, who takes the big MacGuffin secret weapon and heads to L.A. with her Symbionese Librarian Society Stockholm Syndrome captor-slash-lovers. Instead of heading in under duress to liberate the president, here he's liberating the president's daughter and this weapon. Otherwise, it wants to be the same damn movie, but it sure as hell isn't on any level. The big excitement here is a bunch of cholo shit supporting to play basketball. Oh, and he surfs. And one of the worst green screen you're ever likely to see outside of Blade 2. I'm not kidding you. The CG sucks. The script is crap. The people that chose to fill the various roles are offering differing degrees of abominable. And while he's in good shape, it's a long way from 1981. Kurt's looking kind of scrubby and dirty here. Pam 
doesn't even show up until late in the film, as a voice pitch-shifted tranny who used to be Carjack Malone, but now runs around in Tina Turner outfits and fishnets. It'd be funny if it weren't so pathetic. Couldn't they have cast RuPaul or something? I think Pam would be embarrassed about this one, but who knows? The whole film sucks so bad, everyone involved has to have a good sense of humor about it. It's pretty terrible. It sat in development hell for an entire decade. That should say a lot. Mm. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, like, like, no, like I say, <laughs> I'm like, would you want to be blown by a train to look like Pam Grier? <laughs> oh, maybe, uh, but <laughs> that is like. <laughs> <laughs> And you wonder why I like the Joker so much. So, that aside, this is like the movie, now you have to admit this, this is like the movie we always wanted. We all wanted to escape oh, yeah. from New York sequel. We all wanted that, like, fucking hard. We wanted that. We wanted it really bad. We wanted it, like, like the most amazing blowjob. We wanted that escape from New York sequel, right? Right? 16 years. Yeah. So we knew it was coming, and we got all excited. Well, what do I sound like? I sound like the guy from uh, Punisher. Yeah, so we got all excited. <laughs> so anyway, so we got all excited. We did. And then we saw this movie, like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? So, 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 <laughs> so, so, so Snake, you said he was dirty? Look at he's beefy. Oh, no, he's muscular. He was, he was in good shape. He just looked dirty. Well, no, I thought Kurt looked kind of beefy, muscular, but beefy muscular, you know? He was like one of these guys who grew up and was a bodybuilder, but when he got older, he goes, look at my body. He said, yeah, you're fucking beefy. <laughs> so, Kurt looked a little beefy, muscular, but beefy, but you still look good. But everything else was like, come on. It was like, all right, all right, we're going to, you know, hey, it's Peter Fonda. Oh, we're going to surf. <laughs> and then, you know, then we got, to, I'm looking forward to Pam Grier being this. And then she comes up with a guy's voice. <laughs> and then, and then, yo, our hero, yo, Ash from the Evil Dead. Yo, it's in this oh, movie. We all I tried did. to forget that part. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, man, he's fucking in this movie, too, yo. It's like he's the shit. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> how can you do Bruce Campbell, man? Yeah, it was just... And Bruce, yeah, What's funny like, is that everybody was really down on it and hated it. If you look at critical reviews, we heard people talking about it. And yet, it made a decent amount of money, from what I heard. It made a decent amount of money. It's just because everybody went to see it because they, they were like, we're waiting for this movie. And then they were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, I mean, besides those we talked about, you know, Robert Carradine, Paul Bartel is in this. You know, uh, this is... Oh, was... was <laughs> Cliff Robertson was the president. Yeah, it was like the only living fucking Michael guy we could find to play that part. <laughs> but yeah, just Map to the Stars, Eddie. That was the pseudo Ernie Borgine part, right? The Steve Buscemi play? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes if something can be development hell for too long, that means a lot of people added their two cents. And then it's like, oh, you know? Yeah, no matter what happens, it's going to be a mess afterwards. What happens, it could be a mess. This is one of the most disappointing John Carpenter films. And for me, this is one of the most disappointing Kurt Russell films. Yes. Yeah, sequels, period, period. Uh, I know she appeared in Mars Attacks that 
Really bad Tim Burton. Yeah, okay, here's what I said. The 90s were a weird decade. I remember them being extremely split, with the first few years being overly strident and ugly thanks to all the college kids sneering at the metal culture that was summarily abandoned and crushed when all the labels jumped to the whole Seattle grunge thing. Plus the original wave of politically correct bullshit and sensitivity drank thrown on college campuses and any sort of normal relations between cultures and sexes into a tizzy of walking on eggshells and being lectured to about all sorts of nonsense about what were becoming a bunch of tattooed and shaved heroin addicts, all fall in the wake of their rather Lord Heroes instead of taking it all as an object lesson and backing away from the shit show slowly. The perfectly hard start to the decade suddenly cleared up like timeless after a tsunami. Never mind all the houses washed away and the dead bodies in the street. It's a sunny day again. And the latter half of the decade was amazing in so many ways. At least if you were a dark and kinky goth type and or into stuff like Hong Kong cinema, 70s cult and Euro horror, Japanese anime, J-Rock. All this stuff was just kind of breaking out here after a few mild tries over the past few decades prior. There was a lot more going on, but you had to know where to look and give a damn in the first place. But it's also a decade where a lot of things that seemed great at the time really don't hold up on contemporary resuscitations. And I mean, as in, there's just no way to have nostalgia for a lot of this shit. Case in point, everybody and their mother shows up for this weird Tim Burton stinker. An unfunny, and I have it in quotes, comedy, based on, of all things, 50s bubblegum trading cards. Oddly, it was something of a cultural lodestone for a good decade, and managed to revitalize the career of bellowing 60s schmaltz chanteuse Tom Jones, previously best known for the reputed size of his dick, and how many panties in the hotel room keys got thrown at him by his mostly female fan base it shows. Everybody who once was anybody or had some presence during the decade wound up in this Nashville of the 90s, from first family Jack Nicholson as the president, Glenn Close as the First Lady, Natalie Portman as his daughter, Martin Short as the Press Secretary, to Sarah Jessica Parker as a fashion reporter who keeps getting the big news scoops, and Michael J. Fox as a newsroom head who doesn't, our man Joe Don Baker as the head of a family of militia-type hicks, with his sons Lucas Haas from Witness and Jack Black, and Grandma Sylvia Sidney, believe it or not, exploitation veterans Jim Brown as an Xboxer come casino cosplayer, Pam Greer as his wife, and a certain of obbles like Tom Jones, Annette Benning as a flaky rich New Age nutjob, Pierce Brosnan as a professor, Danny DeVito as a gambler, kind of a walk-on, Lisa Marie as a Martian girl, Christina Applegate, Rod Steiger, Paul Winfield. The CG is horrible. The disembodied heads of Parker and Brosnan make out. Brown gives the world's worst boxing match against the Martians, who, by the way, <laughs> are the shittiest CG Gumbies you've ever seen. <laughs> Pam's like furniture. She's the wife. She has nothing to do with take phone calls from Jim Brown. That's it. It's not funny. It's kind of pointless. Why was this popular again? Oh, that's right. Everybody and their mother were part of it. The Starfucker thing always packs the seats. I don't know why this thing even exists, much as why it was so huge for like a decade afterwards. People still talking about, oh, Mars Attacks, Mars Attacks. God, what a piece of crap. Well, very, very disappointed. I saw, I saw our opening weekend. I really wanted to see it. Um, not so much for the cards. I like Tim Burton a lot. And I was like, uh, look at this cast, you know? And the the trailers are very cagey. They didn't show you much. I said, hang, Tom Jones is in it. Fuck, I got to go see it. <laughs> Actually, Tom Jones winds up the only person walking away from this thing with a bit of a career. Yeah. <laughs> it totally revitalized his career. Not only did it revitalize his career, he went back into deep into blues and stuff, and, and I actually saw him after this. It's like, yeah, almost all these guys, like Pierce Brosnan shortly lost the Bond series after this. Jack Nicholson retired. Glenn Close, we thought she was dead anyway. <laughs> Annette Benning still being a sub to Warren Beatty. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> but, uh, yo, whatever. Martin Short, you still alive? <laughs> and, yo, that, that kind of thing is going on. But, yeah, Pam Greer, the subject of our show, she has like, such a small role. It was a hugely disappointing movie for me, and I really 
It was it was such a messed up movie that even when I got around to interviewing Lisa Marie last year, I didn't even want to ask her about it. <laughs> because it's like, I don't want to piss people off, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I can hear that. So 1997, Jackie Brown, where she actually got the San Diego Films Critics Society Award for Best Actress, among other things. Typically gritty and kinetic 90s Tarantino film, with the usual homages and swipes from older cult films, in this case 70s exploitation and soundtracks. It's the same thing that appealed about Biggie Smalls and Puffy Combs at the time. All this retro celebration, and yet, as always, the sum is ultimately far lesser than the parts it intends to pay homage to. Samuel L. Jackson does his usual foul-mouthed, super-heavy gangbanger number here, as a Kango-wearing gunrunner and drug dealer, who keeps folks like a Mexican bandito-looking Robert De Niro as couriers. The film's really all about him, as we really don't see Pam after the credit roll for a good half hour. It's all about Sam, his power games with a blonde bimbo trophy fuck, who surprisingly enough is actually Bridget Fonda with a wig or dyed hair, and trying to sell De Niro on coming into business with him, plus bailing out a former courier and pulling a mafia-style hit on him to cover his ass against squealing. Apparently Pam, who's supposed to be in her mid-40s and very much looks it, is another of her couriers, a low-rent airline stewardess who gets nailed with a big payoff and some blow, so the DEA blackmails her into taking Sam down. Of course, she's also got to convince Sam that she's really working for him and against the DEA, so the rest of this is her playing both sides against the middle while nursing a thing with bail bonds when Robert Forster, for whatever reason, silver singles seeking love, I don't know. Actually, it's even more convoluted because you got the blonde bimbo and De Niro working some courier thing for themselves and against Sam, Pam, and Forster. Pam and Forster working with another one, essentially for the DEA against Sam, but really against everyone involved, and she winds up beating a rap, running away with a shitload of cash, and leaving Forster to do the walk of shame. Not bad for an old lady, huh? Whatever. Tarantino's always been a mixed bag for me. I appreciate and I recognize all his influences, which I love. The little tidbits he throws into the soundtrack, the scene swipes, the old Italian cult films on people's TVs, the whole deal. But I can't stand all the bullshit American crime films mob stuff and all the cursing is just a little too David Mamet for me. Pam's looking old and I really don't get all the love bestowed on this one. I mean, maybe it's good by Tarantino standards, but honestly, what's that saying? Uh, I like this movie. It's really good. It's my favorite Tarantino movie because I think there's some heart beneath the stuff going on there. Robert Foster, who who also recently passed, was given like the role of a lifetime. The guy was like, he was this counterculture dude, and then he showed up in exploitation era, uh, like Alligator, remember that? Yes, and, and a couple of other crime things. He even did a TV series, short-lived, as an American Indian lawman. And he just never, he never made it. Yeah, for whatever reason. Yeah, he did some really good counterculture things. He was doing stuff trying to to make ends meet, and then Tarantino gave him this part, and he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Good for you. And Pam became the star of this film. And you said Pam doesn't show up for the first blah, blah, blah. She shows up in the very first tracking shot. Yeah, in the opening credits. She's there, and then disappears. The opening credits, yeah, which is which is that whole lamb, whole damn long soul song. It's across 110th Street, yep. remember? Yep. She's on She's on that air, airport. What do you call those things? You just stand and it used to take you to where your luggage is? Remember that? Motorized walkway or something. You stand there, like I said. Yeah, they don't, they don't even have that anymore, I think. So she stood on that, and that whole thing was him doing a close-up on her face as she's just standing there, and it's moving to where her luggage is. It's a, It's got a lot of interesting people in it. It's got a lot of things I like, though, because Louis, Robert De Niro playing Louis, who's Samuel Jackson's, like, go-to guy is his buddy, you know, and, you know, they're sitting down, they're watching, uh, they're watching girl, girls into guns ads and stuff. Yeah, like Andy Sidaris films or something. Yeah, Andy Sidaris movies or they're watching Italian stuff, and then he gets pissed off because, because Samuel thinks, well, well, Bridget Fonda kind of, like, you know, 
got Luigi like you know banger, <laughs> and then and then they're in the car together. And he goes like, "I love you, man," and he, and he shoots him. Yeah, that's a good scene too. I thought the weak link was the the FBI thing with Michael Keaton and the other guy, or hell it was, I forgot. You can't you can only jam so much stuff into this pudding before it tastes like shit. But I love Foster, I really love. Pam. Hey, another breaking news. Wesley Snipes just won San Diego Film Critics Society Best Supporting Actor, playing Durable Martin in Dolomite. You called it. I called it. <laughs> you called it about five minutes ago or ten minutes ago. Yeah, look at that. Look at that. Oh, good for him. A lot of time, people. <laughs> no, it, you you have to see that if you haven't seen it, because it's if you've seen some of the Rudy Ray Moore films, and it kind of ties into the theme of our show somewhat. It's it's worth watching, and it's not what you think it is. So, any more comments on Jackie Brown? You want to get out? Jackie Brown, I think we're done with. Okay. So next up, uh, two movies that I figured you want to address before we cut this off, which was Ghosts of Mars, which is another John Carpenter stinker, and The Adventures of Pluto Nash, which is uh, an Eddie Murphy stinker. So, but you also mentioned The L Word and how she'd been on there for a while. I really never watched the show, but you know. Well, okay. So the L Word was on for a good number of years. It's it's one one of those shows like has it, it's sort of like um, a lot of these CW shows that. I was like, I never watched one that's been on for 32 years. You know, oh, like Charmed? <laughs> yeah, like Charmed or one of these pseudo marvel Avengers DC type things. That, no, DC, DC, they do, right? And I'm like, seven seasons. I haven't seen one fucking episode. But <laughs> but no, the Albert was kind of pseudo-interested. I would jump in and out of it. Basically, it's LGBT show. It was on, uh, I think it was HBO or Showtime. I'm sorry, forgive me, whichever one it was. And uh, Pam Greer would flit in and out of it. She was, she was on for a good part of the first seven seasons she was one of the first one of the only non-gay characters in that very strong woman character she identified with that i i looked at some interviews with pam about her role in that show it was uh, it was award-winning a lot of people you know jennifer beals was one of the big stars eric mabius who you might remember from a few things uh, there were a lot of people mia kirshner a lot of people we know from genre in and out and some familiar faces from like cable-ish things but Pam was a very strong woman who gave great advice and great gave great motherly sort of like in the in the, in the matrix the early matrix films there was that character of of the uh, I forgot what it was called the aunt the mother whatever you know that that Neo would go see and she knew everything but she would be very very calm and she would be very knowing and she would she would speak in not so much riddles, but in like, well, if you want to open that door, be aware that that door that you will open will lead you to here and there. But if you choose that door, which is the door you always wanted to open, it's going to take you to where you always wanted to go. That kind of thing. So that was her role in the L word. Very motherly, matronly. She started to look kind of matronly around this time period. And, and so she was on the show for a very long time. Very award-winning show one of the first lgbt shows to to get you know award recognition and critical uh positive recognition in in the midst of all that she did show up in another john carpenter movie <laughs> uh yeah. which it's you know i i'm starting to see some uh revisitations by people on this ghost of mars 
Yeah, it's probably the same people that really start to like things like Event Horizon, which also sounded really good on paper, but doesn't fucking work. So, yes, on paper, this sounds awesome. John Carpenter, who we did a show on a few years back, tackles sci-fi. Somewhere between Outland, which we talked in our uh, Sean Connery show, and Midnight Run, where Mars has been terraformed and has become largely governed by women. Species bimbo Natasha Henstridge leaves her clothes on for a change in the De Niro role, having to transport criminal Ice Cube out to a distant mining camp back to the city. Pam and Jason stay them are part of her team, but it all goes to shit when it turns out the miners uncovered some ancient Martian tomb and let loose a bunch of alien ghosts who possessed everyone and caused a huge self-massacre. After finding their quarry among all the body parts and crew, they find the ghosts are still haunting the place, and even the survivors who make it back to the city aren't believed when they warn that the ghosts won't stop until they've removed every single off-worlder. Interesting cast, also featuring Robert Carradine from Revenge of the Nerds, and Joanna Cassidy from The Laughing Policeman and The Glove, uh, which we talked during our John Saxon show, but somehow the execution falls flat. It just doesn't fucking work. It should... Uh, the basic plot sounds awesome and cult-worthy, but something about Carpenter's direction here, the oddly understated acting, even the subpar score he delivers, sabotage it at every turn. I've tried it many times, actually, over the last 20 years, but was never able to even sit through the whole thing. It's that much of a failure. Bottom line, this comes in the latter part of Carpenter's career, where the only brief glimmers of hope were 94's In the Mouth of Madness, and his excellent Masters of Horror contribution, Cigarette Burns, a decade later. Otherwise, 1988's They Live pretty much puts the seal on the men's filmography. You might as well forget anything he did thereafter. Sansa score for the last Halloween, but that's another thing. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree with you. There's something wrong with the direction of this movie. Our, our subject of tonight's show is in this film, and, you know, she, she's just lost in a shuffle with all these, these people. You know, Clea Duvall, I always liked Clea. She was in that weird uh, Roberto Rodriguez, one of his best damn movies. Fuck, what was that? Something, I don't know. Uh, what's this thing where... She was just, like, so hot, although she was, like, this ambiguous, like, maybe straight, maybe gay character. I can't. Anyway, Jason Statham is in this. And, you know, I always love Jason Statham. I'm Jason Statham supporter. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, you think it'd be worse things, right? Yes. <laughs> so, no problem. Yeah, it's just funny. It's just, like, after lock. Lock, Stock, and Juice Smoking Barrels, which is pretty much his debut in 1998 for Guy Ritchie. Yes, that guy's been around this long. And then the same year in Snatch, no joke, another <laughs> Guy Ritchie mill movie, not one I directed. Um, two years later, he shows up and goes to Mars. And then from there on, you know, he hit the one with Jet Li, the transporter, of which there's been many sequels. And then Jason Statham's been on a roll. Hell, he was in the ridiculously entertaining Hobbs and Shaw this year, which I recently saw in streaming, which I still have to check my pulse for the most ridiculous high-energy film I've ever seen. That says a lot. But going back to this movie, Ice Cube, who was never a thing, never will be a thing, was a rapper of respect because he wasn't one of those dark killed whiteies guys. He was okay, and he try after this movie, they tried to move him to career as older black man with a family jokey movies. Remember those? Yep, like that's it. That's, you, a, that's what I remember that? him for. It's always like, what the hell are those things? It's like sub barbershop kind of things where it's like, yeah, yeah like, no. How about like Honey Wears the Kids? Was that it? Or something like they would drive somewhere, <laughs> drive and, something. That was the name of it. You're right. Yeah, yeah. It was like a bunch of kids in the car, and they would like it was like a sub. Uh, National Lampoon kind of movie. Yep. They would go on a vacation, but the car wouldn't. Some fucking thing like that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, he's, 
he seems to be a nice fellow. But it's like, Ice Cube? Yeah, I'm sure this was like Screen Gems who produced this. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> uh, this guy's a big rapper now. You got to put him in there. You got Jason Stamos up and coming. You got to put him in this. And everybody's like, shh, 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 shh. Yeah, and Natasha Henstridge, which I'm not sure if you name checked her, you know, was good in, well, I wouldn't say good, but she was. She was running around naked in species. That's basically all she's known for. <laughs> there you go. And, and whatever happened to her? Anyway, she's still alive. She started taking roles like this where she kept left her clothes on. Nobody cared. And you could make me look. Oh, she was in Species Two. Of course. Oh, she was in one of our one of our favorite Van Damme movies, which was Maximum Risk, which we we discussed in our Van Damme show. I wouldn't call that a favorite, um, but yeah, you can go back and listen to that show. One of my favorites. One of my favorites because I really like that film. Go back and listen but, to our Van Damme show. <laughs> yes, it was a really good show, folks. We actually spoke well of Van Damme, but no, she, she's really bound bound out. Because she did this terrible barely released thing where she played somebody in the in the sequel to Rape Raging Bull. But William Forsyth as Jake LaMotta. Yeah, yeah. See no more, see no more. Anyway, so this is a huge mess, unfortunately. This is like a film we want to be fun. Look at the cast we just discussed. And Pam's in it, Jason Statham's in it. Hey, even the Ice Cube fans. Ice Cube's in it. Joanna Cassidy, you didn't mention Blade Runner. She's in it. It's not what it could have been. And it's, it's not even what it sounds yeah. like a paper. It's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like a man movie. Like, meh. But you want to speak of Pluto Nash. Oh, yeah. This yeah, is go ahead. probably the nadir of her career and certainly the oh, nadir of the Eddie Murphy's. Adventures of Pluto Nash 2002. What if Blade Runner were remade as an unfunny comedy with a washed-up Saturday Night Live star and a selection of name actors like Randy Quaid, Rosario Dawson, John Cleese, Burt Young, Alec Baldwin, and Pam Rierento? And you catch that billboard for Trump Realty trying to sell tract homes on the moon? Hmm. That sounds good, man. Pam's in this for all two seconds. <laughs> Pam's in it for all of two seconds. Skyping in a horribly overactive pair of lines is Murphy's mom, and she gets credit for this? This is one of so many films lens in the mid to late 90s and 2000s, considered by someone or other on the internet to be the worst films of all time. But there's so much competition for that. I always have to laugh when people argue that there's still value in modern cinema or music, when it's so obvious our glory days are so far behind us, with the high points of cutoff laying yeah, somewhere in the range between the 20s and the early 90s. Personally, I think the pre-code early 30s and the 70s were the indisputable high points. But their valid arguments fall all over that 40-year range, and even into the 80s if you want. But since the mid-90s, at best, populist entertainment and popcorn fare as easily forgotten as it is assimilated. And that's the good stuff. The rest of it comes off more along the lines of this film. So if you really want to torture yourself, go ahead and check it out. Otherwise, yeah, forget it existed. <laughs> wow, that, that, the last statement you went, I have points with. But we won't go into that. But no, <laughs> Little Nash was, was one of Eddie Murphy's... It was actually one of his band bombs, and he's been on an up and down roller coaster. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you 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 can't bring the guy who brings you the food. You have to bring you have to blame the guy who cooked the food, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's 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 just it's a mess. But around this this time period, the only thing he had interesting going for him was like the Shrek films. Yes. <laughs> but he was doing voiceover. He was fine doing that. You know, unfortunately, he did a lot of big career decisions around this time. He, he does the I Spy remake with Owen Wilson, who actually, I'm going to say, has has some good films. 
Yeah, I, I enjoy his Jackie Chan pictures. There were some good. He did this really phenomenal thing. He was a family guy stuck in Vietnam, which was probably nail biting. Uh, if you know what that is, I'll let you know. Really, Owen Wilson is not untalented, but Owen and Eddie Murphy doing any spy, bad decision. Also directed by a lady who was in, I don't know, some uh, TV series. It was even worse idea. Another Coke dream. <laughs> Eddie's Retribution was possibly in Dream Girls, a really good film version of the Broadway show. Eddie was phenomenal in that. And he was nominated for many, many awards. And they fucked him over because the only one he won was the Golden Globe. And he didn't win an Oscar. That would have helped him out. Unfortunately, he got a fat suit. And then he started doing fat suit movies. Oh, the stupid Nutty Professor movie. Yeah, wow. Yeah, Nutty Professor, Norbit. And then he disappeared for like four years. And he did this uh, picture with uh, Brett Rasner, somebody else. And uh, was it Adam Sandler? No, Ben Stiller. It was a heist film that nobody saw. It called Tower Heist, go figure. Which actually wasn't bad, but nobody saw it because people aren't paying attention to Eddie anymore. So... Three years ago, he he played a older gentleman helping out an elderly white woman who was dying, and he played Mr. Church. That was his character. Really good film. Nobody t- paid attention. So what does Eddie do? He looks at Rudy Ray Moore's life and story, comes back as Rudy Ray Moore, and Dolomite is my name. I highly recommend that. And um, supposedly he's hosting Saturday Night Live on Christmas. Yeah, we'll, we'll see that. As far as Pam Greer goes, she was just like, how do you say, like, she was like a blip on this horizon. And, and she barely registers in this. Exactly. And somewhere around this time, she also started showing up occasionally as the annoying Amanda Waller of Smallville, a character in story arc that I hated in the comics and on the show as well. But, hey, it's work. You know, my wife would get excited. Hey, look, isn't that Pam Greer? But I think it's around the time when we said we kind of cut this off because she starts doing a lot of bit parts in films that just, I don't know, don't appeal to either of us, really. <laughs> yeah, bit parts in films and bit parts in TV shows. Uh, she had actually made more impression than the occasional documentaries like Machete Maidens Un- Unleashed in 2010 uh, from the Australian guys, uh, which is pretty much about the women in prison films made in uh, Australia and the Philippines. You know, she, she appears on TV now and then, you know, like Smallville. She was in a couple episodes, uh, this and that. But lately she's been pretty quiet. You know, Pam, Pam is approaching 70. So, you know, whatever's going on with her life. But back in the day, she was a woman. She was the one. She was a powerhouse. Powerhouse. Beautiful. Beautiful woman. And one of the few women that could not only carry a movie by herself and get people in the seats for it, but yes. a black exploitation movie in particular. So, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Pam Greer. Next time, what are we going to do? Are we going to do the Firefly show finally? We, we are going to do Firefly for all those people. We're going to heavily promote the shit on Facebook. That's right. All you brown jackets, come on and we do a cook of Firefly and Serenity. Yeah, yeah, because because. Firefly is one of those shows like, yeah, I'll get to it. Then once people are hooked, like, oh, shit. It took me, what, 20 years or something stupid? I just found it last year. And people kept pushing at me for years. You were one of them for sure. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, you got to see this guy. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know. Nathan Fillion, who gives a damn. And then I saw it, and my mouth dropped. I'm like, wow. And now you see anything with Nathan, right? Right? <laughs>
I wouldn't go that far, but it was really surprisingly good. I know, and then and then the chick was in the the what's that? Oh, what's Dead her name? Uh, Mar- Macarena Bucker in there. What her name is? Oh my God! Yes. Oh, jeez! Wow. <laughs> and then when I saw her in, in Deadpool, I was like, I can see this. That's why I was like, I didn't know that was her, because before I was like, wow, well, yeah, he gets with a hot girl there. I really like that part. And, and the first Deadpool, when she's like all naked and like all that hot and heavy, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I knew her in Deadpool before I knew her in this. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But uh, yeah. And even that yeah. Christina Hendricks, I had some friends making going nuts about her in Mad Men or something. I'm like, I don't watch Mad Men. Fuck that show. But then I saw that, I'm like, oh, okay, that's oh, why. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> See, this is called yeah. retroactive viewing. Yeah. yeah. And they had Barney Miller's Ron Glass. I'm like, come on, really? And, uh, he pulled it off. He was good. He pulled he, it off. He wasn't yeah. in enough episodes. I mean, you know. <laughs> he, he, even that Goomba, uh, what's his name? The guy who was in Independence Day. They're going to kill us for not knowing this stuff. <laughs> That's why you tune in next time. <laughs> tune in next time. We remember every actor's name. This isn't the Brown Jackets. Actress. This is the Pam Greer fans. <laughs> this is the Pam Greer fans because we know the Brown Jackets are like slaughter us. Exactly. In and of itself, that should be a fun show. <laughs> See them all like like the guy, the comic guy on The Simpsons. There, oh uh, well, you forgot that in episode four, scene fifteen, that uh, Nathan's character. Did. <laughs> hey, we we will we will even uh, uh, if I can get my co-host to do this, we will even play the theme song. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, which everybody knows, but that us correct. But we know it well. <laughs> but we will play the theme song in in apropos. An introduction of the show. So you have time. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening to Pam Greer and Dick Show, Firefly. So if you'd like to contact us here, comment suggestions, or you're a filmmaker musician who'd like to join us on here, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. You can also find us at podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. Probably better off just searching us at the Cinema Weird Scenes inside the Goldmine Podcast. But if you need a specific ID, it's 5534 Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on podcast. So anything else you want to say before we close out? No, as always, I appreciate you guys listening, and uh, I hope you do continue to listen. Uh, we have lots of interesting ideas coming up for our next season, or later for this one, and uh, we hope you have fun with it. All right, so season 10, coming very soon. Yes. Stay tuned.
still? Yes. Oh, okay. It could tell me there's a problem with the microphone, but I don't see why. Tommy, can you hear me? <laughs> so how's everything on your end? All right. Tired. They also had a grab bag yesterday, which I knew for a couple of weeks, but I just didn't have the time, and so... I ran to the mall and ran back and then wrapped everything, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Had one hour to, like, okay, let's go. <laughs> was it a secret Santa or was it the old-style grab bag? Old-style, like a big, big-ass bag. And the just grab for it. <laughs> Did they make you draw just, numbers? No, but you just pick what you, you know, what you choose. And I was the first name called, who and does something look like who's? So I, I chose it. <laughs> And it was really heavy, and it was this ornate box with a bottle of wine inside, but it was, like, nice. It had one of these, uh, you know, a uh, corkscrew and an opener, and then it also had one of these aerators, so, you know, it tries to keep it from going, you know, bad. Yeah. I had, like, two or three of those in there. I was like, ooh, it's a nice box. I'll just take all these things out of it eventually. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm actually, I was on the last bottle here. I won't be getting through this one today, but I tried a new one last night. It's another one of these menage trois. Apparently it's called mm. Silk. And it's hilarious because they write all this weird stuff on it. You know, the decadence was bad. It's like, lose yourself in the sensual pleasures of silk. Let the exotic fragrance arouse your senses. It's just cheesy. Softly caress your palate. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Who did they pay to write this crap? In the back's like, ooh, it's a smooth, seductive blend that caresses you with every sip. It's the lavish, luxurious experience you've been craving, like silk. <laughs> it is a new job, you know. Either that or writing uh, captions for JPEGs on X-Hamster. Either one. Yeah, you know. it's pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> I got one of those menage trois. Um, I couldn't find the ones you recommended, but I, I, I got a different one. You know, same menage trois right. brand, but. Uh, not one of the ones you mentioned, and it was very acidic. I thought you liked and the Midnight. I, I liked the Midnight, but I couldn't find Midnight again. Ah. So I went to another shop and said, oh, you have this. Great. It was a different store. But it wasn't one of the ones that, yeah, no, I really liked the Midnight. And and so I got this other one. It wasn't one because I, I still kept, you know, your your text. Yeah. And I said, ah, I'll try it. And I was like, open it up after a couple of days. And I said, ooh, that's nasty. <laughs> but but my, my uh, so the bottle that was in the, the box was a barefoot. It's fine. No. But but my friend bought a case of Portuguese wine. Okay. And as we were all leaving, take one, take one. I said, I'm here with three people, so can I take two? He said, oh, yeah, sure. I said, no, I didn't want that. I just took one. Yeah. <laughs> just just in case I'm stuck with two bottles of wine I don't like. Right. You know. mm-hmm. Other than that, I always put up a tree. You know that. Right. You know, going back and forth with this ricochet rabbit kitten. <laughs> no, I, I just don't know. You know, it's I, I hate to come home and find it's stuck on a tree or buying the lights <laughs> or topples it. You know, because you got to put those things in water. Yeah. And you know. I could tie it to the wall by putting screws in the walls. I don't know. It might be a last-minute decision next week. I only have one more weekend. And you just screw it to the wall with some, like, fishing wire or piano wire or something. Or get yourself a really crappy fake tree. That's what we did. And still, the cat, you know, bites the lights through and puts out whole entire strings every year. And you always see it kind of rocking back and forth. You see the cat hanging. The claws are kind of stuck in the tree, but it always gets out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, I, I did investigate that, and they're kind of... Pricey. I'm like, 
Oh, if I'm gonna spend that kind of money, I'll get a real tree. You know. Oh no, you don't want to spend a bunch of money, get out of here. But you know, this is years ago. I think I don't know when we got this damn thing, but it was one of those sales for like thirty bucks or less. Oh, you still got it? Yeah, yeah. Cause yeah. fake trees. The guys at work, which you probably saw the pictures from the crazy holiday party we had Friday. Um, the guys at work uh, bought one for you know just for the workplace, and you know they're like really excited. Oh, oh, it's like six feet. So we took it out of the box. I said, you know, this is like a fucking Auschwitz tree. You know, it's terrible. <laughs> it's like a stick. It's a stick with a couple of fucking fuzzy things on it. I'm like, guys, I don't know, man. How much you spent for this? You know, we could have bought a real fucking tree and just water it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, in one respect, you could say it can be full if you do the branches right so it actually looks like it looks solid-ish. But the problem is that... It's too thin. So it basically yeah. is like a long stick that's, okay, yeah, it's conical. It sort of looks like a tree, but who would have such a puny tree? <laughs> well, uh, my friend, you know, he's Jewish and, and she's she's Asian. So, she, you know, she does the Christmas thing, although she's going to Israel without him this year because she likes to travel and they got money. They had a short, tiny little tree. Say, hey, where's the big blue tree? You know, mm-hmm. and it was a nice little tree. And she goes, oh, I got a Home Depot, 20 bucks. I'm like, hmm. But then I'm like, where can I put that? If I put it on a table, you know that zero hour. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, I'm going to see my mom in Brooklyn next Saturday. So at least Sunday opened, which I might just say, fuck it, I'll try. Yeah, yeah we used to get like nice trees that actually filled the apartment, like fresh live trees. But uh, mm-hmm. the last couple of years were tough with that. And once we switched cars, that was the end of it. Because it was like the old cars, we had the hatchbacks, so you dropped the, uh, you know, being Camaros from the 80s. Right. You flipped the whole back up there, and then you could lay it across. And, yeah, you're dealing with pine needles for most of the year, but it wasn't so bad. Here, it's like, there's no way. What are you going to do, hanging out the little trunk of the Ford? <laughs> well, there, there was a fruit and veggie market about... Three avenues away, so you know it's a hike. But I take the shopping cart, and the guy goes, "You ain't gonna fit." So no, no, lay it across. I'll wheel the shit, and I'll maneuver people who are walking on the street. <laughs> they closed. They were gonna build a condo there. Two years later, no condo. We're not surprised. It's just an open space. And so this church on Central, all the way down there, where Central begins, but it's a little bit of a walk. They had trees, and like I went, we went last year. It's the first time we bought one from them. I'm like, how much? <laughs> because they know they got like you know what do you call it? It's uh, monopoly. Yeah, monopoly. They're the only guys around. So we we paid. I talked them down a little bit, but it was still shorter than I wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I'm told then a tree kind of bumps me out. Yeah, and uh, I'm like, eh, it's okay. And it started dying early. So, but it was it was all right. You know, but if I'm gonna spend. Fifty, sixty dollars. I know that's cheap, man. No, it's, it's cheap. that's the sad part is we wouldn't even spend that much. We still used to get them for like thirty dollars, and the last couple of times we did it, we had to go for around the forty range. Mm. But you know, it was weird because we used to get it from certain yards, and there was actually one mm. by uh, Old Bada Bing's there. <laughs> you know where that is? Well, this place, the place that closed, I told you about the fruit and veggie place. Forty, forty-five dollars. It was like a seven-foot, eight-foot tree, yeah, exactly and she goes, it's, "It's too big." I said, "No, nah, man, they did a nice cut for you." I'm like, "All right," but mm, I the remember. last couple of years we actually went up going to Lowe's and then Home Depot, and still mm. getting around the same range if you're careful. If you got the right size, you got a decent spruce, and mm. then we were going with 
I, like I think it was the uh, Frasier fur and the mm. Douglas, and I was like, all right, fine, as long as it's you know, the needles will last for a while. But uh, we were still pulling off, and somewhere between, I think the last couple of years were 40 to 45. And then, uh, like I said, we just gave up a year or two back. And, Screw it, we had this cheap tree. Let's just use this. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the other thing too is, you know, even though the cats are still on the tree, they're not like eating needles and stuff. We have a, a fake ornate on the the glass coffee table at the. The last big TV used to be on. Now this big TV can't fit. But, and so, you know, she bought us some store for like 10 bucks. It's nice. It's kind of fading with time. But fucking cat eats the fake flowers. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, hey. And she came home the other night. Where is it? I said, I put it on top of the bookshelf because I don't want to deal with it anymore. <laughs> if it's not there for the cat to eat, she won't eat it. Right? Yep, that's true. So this week we're talking Christmas stuff, and next week I'll be talking the magic stuff. With <laughs> it's like going to be right on Yule we're going to be doing this for the interview. <laughs> magic? Yeah, basically. it's uh, The guy knows his shit from what I've heard. So we're going to have a little chat. He's been asking me for a couple of years to do something like when it feels right, and then it just kind of happens. So. Oh, is, is this do. for his show or something uh, you're doing? No, no, it's actually, I'm, I was like, geez, do I put it on a moving or you know, reactivate that? I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to use it on Third Eye, and I'm just going to put a warning in the front and maybe kind of play both music, <laughs> kind of thing like that. It's for those who uh, appreciate that sort of thing. And or you can do it like else. holiday special, our magic show. Exactly right. Why not? Why not? You could, you could put it on our thing. Yeah, what the hell? All right. Let's see how t- that goes. Test, test this, and then we'll, we'll see. All right? Okay. Every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. 
I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet woman? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some harder and lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> 